What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 32 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, you'll hear from Bell, better known as Cherry Blossom Bell, now director of manufacturing at Heritage Mendocino and longtime Frenchy Cannoli apprentice. We talk a lot about hashish, its history, its meaning, and her new role as lead hash maker at Heritage, as well as some of the goods and bads of the recreational market. So definitely stay tuned for that. I want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of well-known and loved hashishian Frenchy Cannoli. He was the first person to really teach me about hashish, and I believe that his passion for life and for cannabis will live in his many students and has already inspired a new generation of hashishians worldwide. So you will be missed, Frenchie, but never forgotten. I also want to take a moment to thank every person that makes up our community on Patreon. If it weren't for your support, the podcast would cease to be. So thank you for all your generosity. We hope to keep bringing you exclusive content as a small thank you for your support. If you're not part of the Patreon and you've got through all the podcasts and you'd like to hear some additional interviews or content, you can link to our Patreon through our Instagram bio at the Hashishin or at patreon.com backslash the Hashishin. A big thank you to our sponsors as well. Another big reason that we're able to keep bringing you the podcast and throw events like Coffee and Donuts with Adam live, especially our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. Again, you can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. If you're looking for a great deal on a great set of wash bags or you want to use the most reliable rosin bags when pressing that precious resin, then go to rosinevolution.com. They prove their reliability on a day-to-day basis, helping so many people around the world press their rosin. So visit rosinevolution.com for anything rosin and use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. That's THI 710, saves you 5% on your entire rosin evolution order. Big shout out to our homies, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company. If you're in the market for the highest grade plates on the market, grab a set of Powers Plates. You can feel the difference. They're made of only the highest grade components. They're also the best looking plates on the market. Visit them again at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com. And use our exclusive savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save $75 on all their plates. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. You can visit them at sixstarsociety.com. That's S-I-X-starsociety.com. They're the spot to grab all the gear that you need to show your love for the resin. Although they're currently sold out, I love their new Six Star Society credit card. They're made of super high quality metal since I got to hand a bunch of them out at Coffee and Donuts with Adam. They're perfect for separating the resin after a freeze dryer cycle. They also hooked me up with their new Hasher t-shirt, which I love. So again, go grab all the gear that shows your love for the resin at sixstarsociety.com or visit them on Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society and use our savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save 5% with Six Star Society. And last but not least, shout out to our homies and sponsors, 
Pele Polare. They came in clutch for us in coffee and donuts in Maine. We are thankful to them as their customized thermal jackets helped us battle condensation, although we were doing the wash outside. You can let them do the work for you and help keep your washes cooler for longer by visiting them at pelepolareco.com. That's P-E-L-L-E-P-O-L-A-R-E-C-O.com to check out all their tools made specifically for hash making. You can also visit them on Instagram at pele underscore polare. And don't forget to use our savings code the letters T-H-I to save you 5% with your entire order with Pele Polare. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today I am beyond stoked to be here with Bell, aka Cherry Blossom Bell, who's currently at Heritage Mendocino. You can follow her on Instagram at Cherry Blossom underscore Bell. You can follow Heritage Mendocino at Heritage Mendocino or their hash division at Heritage Hash underscore CO. Welcome, Belle. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Sending good vibes to everyone out there dealing with the fires. You know, I know they've been pretty intense this year and you've been in the area for a while and I know you have family in the area, so I'm curious how difficult it is to deal with the fact that these are becoming kind of a yearly commonplace thing. You know, I have to say, I live actually on Lake Mendocino. And um, the other day, it pained me to say that I literally walked out to the middle of Lake Mendocino. That's how low it's gotten. I've literally walked to the middle of Lake Mendocino. So to see it so low is really worrisome, especially as an ice water hash maker. You know, you're like, oh man, you know, it's not good. Definitely need a lot more rain. It's really worrisome, you know, and it's just, I've, I've had to, I've had evacuation scares almost three times now, just this year, you know, the other, not even a couple weeks ago, neighbor's property caught on fire and, um, sheriff came to my door and was like hey you gotta pack your stuff you might need to evacuate and it kind of just gets old after a while or running home from from work you know I'm in the lab and I just heard that there was a fire near my house and my dogs are home so I just gotta like run home real quick but that kind of is like man you know it's like it's really scary it is really scary my brothers both of them just became uh, volunteer firefighters up in the Humboldt area. So even more so, I'm just like, you know, we, I love that they're doing something for the community, something really good. But it's also at the same time, I think about their safety, a scary thing. And, it, you know, it's an admirable thing, but it is, it is pretty scary. And for everybody else that does it and volunteers to do it, it's like they have my utmost respect. That's what I love most about California, though. You know, the volunteer firefighters out here and the firefighters. So you know, they're so on top of it. In my opinion, probably some of the best in the world. <laughs> yeah, some of those fires look just massive, you know. Yeah. And so for them to be able to just even contain those to some degree is really impressive, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Good team. Yeah, well, like I said, you know, wishing everybody dealing with those uh, fires well, because I know there's a lot of people affected by them. But you know, on another note, it's interesting. We were talking the other day, and although it seems a lot longer to me, honestly, 
we met yeah. six years ago yeah. at the uh, second lost art of the Hashishin. And, you know, it's been cool from afar to see your path and, and your growth, especially like in your work since then. So I was thinking maybe we could start there. And I'm curious, you know, what took you to that class in 2015? Yeah, so the lost art of the Hashishin class in 2015 was probably Frenchie's, I think you're right, it was his second or third, it might have been his third workshop in San Francisco at the Get Metal warehouse. And um, what drove me to that workshop in particular where we met was, that was actually my, I think that was my first workshop with Frenchie too. It was because I had met Frenchie through my brother, um, Leo. Everyone knows him formerly as Leo Stone with Aficionado Estates, Aficionado Seeds. And so Frenchie, he was already my brother's official hash maker for Aficionado. And then I decided to move up to Humboldt. Or no, he was in Laytonville. He was actually in Laytonville at the time, but I decided to move up to Laytonville to become my brother's farmhand because, you know, that, I mean, once you see a 20 foot plant by six, you know, 20 foot high by six feet wide plant, you know, that's, that's enough to make me want to fucking dedicate my, <laughs> my life to working with it. But yeah, so I was a farmhand and then Frenchie at the time wanted to pass on his way of hash making. So he was looking on taking in a taking on an apprentice. He actually was talking about one of the reasons he decided to take on an apprentice was he was talking to Subcool about having somebody come and take you take them under your wing and be a teacher. And it's funny because Frenchie was like, "Oh, I've never taught anyone. I'm, you know, I'm not. I don't know if I'll be a good teacher." But he decided that, you know, Subcool was right and that he needed to take on an apprentice. And so he decided that it was good timing where I had just moved up there. I was working as a farmhand and Frenchie happened to be looking for an apprentice. Um, and he wanted someone kind of fresh, like who loved hash, appreciated hash, super hardworking, super dedicated and very honest. And uh, yeah, and I guess he saw those qualities in me and he offered me the, you know, he said, hey, you know, I'd like to consider you as my apprentice. However, like, you know, I really want you to come to my class. I'm having a class in San Francisco and I really like, I really want you to see if this is something that, you know, that you want to really do. And so, yeah, that's what brought me to that class was I was there seeing if being Frenchie's apprentice was something I wanted to do. <laughs> And you got me, I guess you got to witness me make that decision. Like, hell yeah, that's something I definitely want to do. I definitely want to be your apprentice. Very much so. Yeah, it is it is funny how that all kind of worked out. And like I told you, uh, I, I have a very like vivid memory of talking to you for a little there. And uh, I think maybe even recently you mentioned something that I totally have forgot that I had mentioned to you about the name of the podcast, like it was kind of already rattling <laughs> in my yeah. brain at that time, uh, which I, like I said, I didn't remember. So, so that's kind of funny, but yeah, it was a special moment. It seems like for you, it was, yeah. you know, and I just, uh, like I told you, I, I, I went to his first one where he did all lecture 
pretty much. And uh, he didn't do a wash. And I, I think he was a little, I don't know, upset is the right word or, or something about how it turned out because it was his first time doing it. And I, I thought it was pretty interesting, you know, because uh, all, all the things he talked about were things that mostly I had no idea about or, uh, you know, I, I knew kind of what hash was and I had consumed it before then. But I think speaking to him and hearing him speak those times really kind of informed me more and started allowing me to think about cannabis and its resin in a different way, you know? I agree with you because the way he broke it down for me made it very clear and very simple, especially the way you view the trichome, very much like a fruit where there's an abscission at the base of the gland where it's supposed to break at the stalk when ripe, very much like a fruit. I, that was one of my favorite analogies. Um, I've heard a couple people actually reference that on this podcast. <laughs> Yeah. So every time, you know, I've heard it, it actually brought a smile to my face like, oh, yeah, there goes that analogy. <laughs> yeah, he was really good at those. And and that was, again, one of the ones that I remember as well, where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just happening at like a microscopic level kind of thing. And you're not yeah. really thinking about it in that sense. And another thing was just that was intriguing to me at the time or kind of clicked for me was you know, having grown up here on this side of the world and basically smoking flour and him coming from the other side of the world and having traveled and spent so much time doing firsthand work and having firsthand experience in these places where hash is such a, a deep culture. It was interesting to think of them seeing the plant through the resin and us looking at it more here for the plant itself kind of thing, you know, is it just a different mindset? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing I learned too at the first, you're right, is that hash maker sees the resin. And that's actually what I catch myself looking. That's the first thing I look at nowadays. It's the resin, especially because when when it comes to processing things, it's what we process, process that resin, collect that resin. So yeah, always definitely paying attention to the resin, whereas before, you know, and, and still a lot of people, you know, they see just the, the blood itself. And even till this day, not a lot of people truly understand that's where, you know, the cannabinoids and terpenes are held. That's actually, it may seem like very common sense, <laughs> very simple information to us. Um, but actually, you know, till this day, that's not very common information. And it's kind of up to us to keep educating people on that, on that information. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, uh, that's part of the reason I think was part of the motivations to kind of start putting this together as well. But it came from kind of inspirations like from Frenchie, you know, where he, uh, I think one of the things that always came through was really just like his passion and that spilled over into whatever, if it was about resin if it was about conservation, whatever it may be about uh, kind of thing. And, and one of the things he was always motivated to, to do is to kind of continue this tradition or like keep these, this culture alive, you know? And uh, yeah. 
one of the things I found interesting is I, I recently watched a video of him where he talks about the fact that, you know, the United States is kind of a unique situation in that it's more of a concentrate culture versus a hash culture, you know? And so I, I'm sure we'll, we'll dig deep into, you know, hash and its meaning and its history. Yeah. But, you know, that you mentioned to me that the last conversation that you had with him centered around craft and preservation of craft. So can you kind of give us a little bit about what was spoken about? Probably one of the most beautiful things that he said was the importance of preserving a craft and passing down traditions. And in that he referenced blacksmiths, people who do embroidery, glass blowers, and how their tech has and the vocabulary associated with that tech has been passed down for hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and there's a reason for that. I mean, this is because they have such a deep respect for tradition. They have such a deep respect for their craft. So a forge is always going to be, you're always going to call the forge the forge to the blacksmith. And, and, and the same with uh, a lot of these other crafts. And um, he mentioned to me in Japan, you know, the, the people who embroider very fine silk kimonos and they embroider the family crest on that. That's actually not just any person who embroiders that. It's, it's a, if I understand correctly, you know, some of these people are Japanese national treasures and these national treasures some of these art forms you know they've been passed down such as woodworking you know there's a woodworker who's also a, a national treasure to japan and these types of crafts they get passed down from generation to generation and there's somebody in that craft there's somebody in each aged area in that craft so that then when one person passes on there's a couple people in each generation below them that can keep passing on that same tech that's kind of how this tech survives. And it's what the foundations, you know, are, it's of course the foundations and we build on them over time, of course. Um, but he was saying that, you know, that's really important to have, you know, these people, the, all these true craftsmen have such a deep appreciation for the history of their craft and where it came from and the meaning behind the words that they're using. Like actually, you know, they know the deep meaning behind these words. And he and, and of course, he went into how people will appropriate certain words and have absolute disregard for the thousands and thousands of years behind that word. It's like, what makes you think that, what, 50 plus years can change the word that's been used for this purpose for a thousand years? Hashish. And I see his point. I saw where he was coming from. And I was like, you know, that's a really good point. Uh, that is a really good point. You know, hashish is, is pressed resin glands. It's always been pressed resin glands. So to call a BHO extract hashish or hash, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. 
I don't really, I don't really agree with that. I do not feel that, you know, I really, some people argue, but my stance is like, I, I just don't agree with that. I, I think that we should honor the, the words and the history behind the word and the fact that it's pre- preserved for a very long time. And it's important to just always have, you know, have that respect and honor for the roots of where we come from. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful. Uh, when he explained that to me, and I was like, it's a good point. You know, it's, he's, he has a very valid point. I like to say, you know, we were talking, when we were talking last time, it's kind of a a fine line because like the way I see it is it's concentrates. You have concentrates is like the whole umbrella because it's, it is a concentrated form of the cannabinoids and terpenes. And then under that concentrates, you have solvent concentrate you have the process to which it was made so what kind like what what process did you use to make this concentrate well you have you could have used the solvent process or you could have used the solventless process i've even heard arguments that people you know um water is a solvent so even that word is a little like oh you know but yeah and and, and under these categories i like to say solventless it's it's kind of the general term that we're using and for it but it then again it's like saying well hash is the general term for you know but to me like i think under your solvent concentrates you have you know your bho and your iso and then you have your and 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 no negative but no negative energy behind that at all every it's just that and frenchie would always say this too like everybody's it's their own craft it's just something different. That's all it is. It's just something different. And everybody, if you're doing it right, you're doing a good job and you're killing it, then you're killing it. And it's your craft. That's how you express yourself. But we just have to be very clear on, on how we're talking about this and how, and how we're uh, sharing this with the generations to move forward. Because the length, you know, uh, we have to set up these, these, these terminologies. And that means agreeing on what what to call hash, because we can't just call all concentrates hash, especially hashish. Um, hashish is a very, very, very specific thing, but not a lot of people really know that. And like like I say, I'm always going to come back to this, but it is up to us, to the people in this industry, to educate other people and to also have a consensus on these things. I'm not sure what that's going to take. I've been trying to figure that out for a long time. I guess it takes being part of the conversation like right now. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I yeah. I like to have these conversations with everyone because partially I was motivated by Frenchie's. I really agreed with him on that point of like, we all need to have a, a, a level playing field when when talking about things. That way everybody's kind of on the same page. but yeah it's it's a complex issue i also feel like there's definitely a lot of validity to the idea of hashish being a very unique thing and like you said being pressed and beyond being pressed i from what i gathered from him it was just like what happened to that resin almost like after the fact right it like changes to the point where it becomes something else where as to concentrates 
uh, don't necessarily do that. I don't know. Maybe they do. Again, we would be talking about aging or curing, depending who you're talking to. So it, it gets Dude, real I complex. Would, you know, I'd like to see a study. You know, I think now is the time to do those. Those we can do the science. Of course, science requires funding. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but you know, and I like that. For instance, Frenchie. One of the things that he left us with is starting that te- starting that research on testing an a, an aged temple ball and seeing what's happening over time. Um, and the last time we talked, you know, so far there was no terpene loss, and in fact, new terpenes were being created, new cannabinoids were being created. THCV was popping up. Interesting, interesting. I want to keep up on this, um, and I know that. Uh, these studies are actually, you can find them on his website at www.frenchcannoli.com. And I, I like to use that as a resource for a lot of things. I, I've always, he used to just give me the raw copy of his articles before he would submit them. One of my <laughs> favorite things, I have a binder, a thick binder full of his writings. And we used to joke around like, dude, look at this thing, man. You could come out with a book now. And he was like, I know. And, um, and yeah, he did. He let, you know, he, there's three books to come out. Uh, his wife's going to keep working on it. So really exciting stuff. Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I actually just heard uh, his last interview today and he mentions those books. So yeah. uh, I'm definitely looking forward to the coffee table kind of history, oh, of, history so of hashish. Cool. Yeah, they're so yeah. cool. I can't wait for them to come out. The stuff he, he's going to, you know, like the research that he did. And I've always admired that about him. Just, you know, like he was definitely like the person that taught me to go to the references of the references <laughs> you know? I go to the references and get those books and like re- he'll literally buy the books and references of articles that he fe- you know he was that he felt that had merit and he did the research too himself it was interesting to see him really get into research mode inspired you know of course sparked that inspiration in me continue that research it's important for all of us to continue the science or at least help you know encourage it yeah no that's cool so let's go back to what you called an apprenticeship and you know from 2015 when you decided that you were going to do this really kind of formal serious training and you know you were still pretty young at that time not that you're not now, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, and you, you told me there were things that you had to give up, including not being able to get out of the city. So what motivated you to continue the path? I think that's a really good question. I really like that question. What motivated me to continue was partly being a woman in this day and age, being able to do this. As a hash maker, typically women are not hash makers. You know, especially it's a, in the Muslim dominant countries where hashish is traditionally, uh, where hashish is from, you know, um, women definitely don't make hash. <laughs> but that's also different in Lebanon, you know, the, in the Becca Valley, you know, uh, it depends on your region, I guess. But typically, you know, it is a male dominant industry. So as a woman, I, I love the fact of just 
being able to do something like this and being a strong, good role model for other women that can do this too. Uh, I really love that because women fought so hard for to 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 have all kinds of freedom. You know, there's so many women died just for us to vote. <laughs> it's a pretty serious. It's something that I take very seriously. So I, I like to be a strong role model, and I like to keep it going. And yes, we can do this. And like, uh, I that that's that's not the only motivation, but that was definitely part of the motivation because it is very hard. It is really hard, you know, like especially um, because it can be labor intensive too. Hard. Lift a lot of ice. Lift a lot of buckets. Lift a lot of water. Especially as a farmhand, you know, <laughs> lifting amendments, you know. But yeah, so that was part of the motivation. And also, um, at the time, my brother, you know, my family, my my family was the motivation, and it's you know still is. My family is always my motivation, and also just that love and friendship with Frenchie and his wife Kim. You know, they're just such wonderful, good people, you know, and I was just like, I love this. I love, I love, I love living with them. I love sharing those moments with them quite a bit. So that, that in itself was just the motivation. And as well as I told you earlier was the knowledge, because as an apprentice, if you, anybody out there wants to be an apprentice and you're looking for an apprenticeship, be prepared to work for free and, you know, accept that. But what you will get in return is knowledge. And that's what was my motivation was I got knowledge priceless, priceless is priceless to me. The knowledge and the experience and just those priceless moments and relationship building that I got to do, like meeting you, for instance, <laughs> you know, like priceless to me, you know, I, I, it's moments like that where, um, that was the motivation too. And and just, of course, the number one motivation, the love of the plant for the love of the plant, man, for the love of the plant and the planet too. And the people that it could help um, the people that, you know, just don't want to take, they don't want to take painkillers anymore, man. They want hash and they want good stuff for the people, you know, like, uh, um, and just being somebody to stand up for it because, you know, I got in big trouble for it a while ago. And, it, and like I told you, you know, they, they make you feel real bad in certain places in the world. They make you feel like a really bad person for it. And for what? So at the same time, it's like my way of being like, you know, taking that step forward. The other day I was, uh, I was on my lunch break and I saw, I saw somebody had a farm shirt on. It was some local farm. Uh, in the area on the back of their shirt, it said something cool though. It said free thinkers of the past become, or the free thinking of the past becomes the present's common sense. And I was like, that's very true. You know, like, <laughs> and it's kind of like this, this moment is that free thinking where I'm, I want to be a part of that free thinking. And so that can be my children's common sense. And it's already happening, you know. A lot of my friends' kids know that. It's just common sense. It's just we. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely ingrained, I think, to the culture of the area that you're in as well. So, yeah. you know, that that also helps to kind of foster that. But at the same time, in a weird way, it's kind of in danger with how things have gone with, like, laws and legalization and stuff. And so you know, now you're kind of in a new venture 
you're working with a company that you told me attracted you because they were local, it's self-funded, and you you've worked with him before. Kyle, I believe you said was his name. Yep. And so that, that was part of the reason that that attracted you. But you also said that there was a lot of uh, kind of hurdles getting into the rec market. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, it's been an interesting experience because when Frenchie and I were making hash, a lot of the time, you know, we were like on the mountains and we were just, you know, like, you know, you're smoking while you're working, you know, just real like kind of hippie gypsy life in a, in a sense, still making hash though. You know, we were still trying to make good, clean quality product, of course, but it was a little bit more artisanal in that sense where we, we came to the farms on some instances. Um, and that was really beautiful. And, um, yeah, you know, like coming into this legal market, as a hash maker, it has been really interesting because like, I, yes, I, 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 I very much do make hash. You know, that's what we mainly do. But at the same time, it's a godsend that I happen to have administrative background and skill set. Because <laughs> the amount of record keeping and compliance and safety, workplace safety, employee safety. One of my most important jobs is the safety of our workplace and our employees. Um, you know, these are all really happening at the same time. And it's like, wow, like uh, it's gone a long way from me pulling bags with a spliff in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, just with my dog hanging out, you know. <laughs> just like whoa like gosh you know like um you know we're doing batch records you know we're and using microsoft excel you know just it, all these things and it's like god thank goodness like i i at least at least that was in i i, I had those cards in my favor at least i had that skill set prior to this you told me that there's a lot of people that come in that are very skillful at like their craft but yeah. they don't necessarily have maybe these other skill sets to do some of the things that they need to do within the recreational parameters yeah yeah and a lot of the time they just weren't prepared for that man it's not fair um because they just weren't prepared for that it's like you're taking these people that that had to literally burn anything that they wrote down now, now you're telling them now they got to write down everything. They were like, that's like the complete two of the extremes right there. Like, okay, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, okay. Now, now we have to record everything when back you didn't have to record anything. So, and a lot of the times I'm seeing and through the multiple companies that I've been with or just seeing in general, you know, like just taking on employees, taking on these taxes, you know, just like all these different factors where it was like not quite like that and 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 in a, in a sense it's good in a sense it's good because it takes care of the employees people are no longer getting well i mean can't say that i can't make that formal statement but it does mitigate more so the possibility of employees getting taken advantage of um i think that it's cool that they're protected under the sexual harassment laws i think it's cool that maternity laws are you know maternity leave is a thing 
I think, you know, like these things are actually, these things are good things. Um, I like these things. I like that. And especially at Heritage Hashco or Heritage Mendocino, we have that window onto the retail floor. So when you walk into our store, the window into our hash lab, you could, you know, you could see everything we're doing and you can see us making the hash. And for me, that makes it worth it. That, that makes all the paperwork, all the data entry, all the, all of that just real mundane, really kind of frustrating stuff and, and everyday company frustrating stuff. And, um, it makes it all worth it. It makes it all worth it to, to finally have the curious crowd in the know or start to become educated about that. That's huge for me. It's huge to see people and their smiles on, on their faces like, wow, that's so cool. Like, look at that resin coming on that tray right now. Like, what? Yeah, and it's cool to be able to talk about it. It's cool to be able to just step outside and be, and answer anybody's questions, be super open source. Because at the end of the day, and that, that, that's what, one of the things I love most about Frenchie was the open source, being open source, being completely open, because the information belongs to the people. The plant belongs to the people. And that's the most important thing for me is like, yeah, dude, it belongs to the people. The people have the right to know. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I mean, you guys are literally transparent. You know, you can you can see into your process. And I think you guys are calling it the the first hashery, you know, in the sense where it, it does have these like viewpoints into the lab and people can see what you guys are doing. But outside of that, uh, you and I were talking a little bit about this the other day about how you also carry other hash brands. And so talk to me a little bit about like the philosophy of not only producing, obviously, your own line, but, you know, having all these other lines available for people to come and kind of be a one stop, you know, shop for hash. Yeah, I love that we have uh, other companies on the shelf with us. One, because it's an absolute honor to be on the shelf with these other brands that we're on the shelf with for, for some, for a super hash head, you know, it's like a little candy shop. So I love that they have those options of just like, we love that at heritage. We love that we have just all those options for people to choose from. And I think the most important thing is we're just trying to break that stigma or just that kind of competitiveness competitive you know competition is is healthy yeah dude it's healthy you know it, it, it's it's what it's what keeps us going and friendly competition is totally cool but at the same time you know these days and a lot of the time and in, in my just my experience as a hash maker in the hash world sometimes people are really cold you know sometimes people are really just about them and they're not you know, they're, they're very sure of themselves. They're very sure of their tech and that's cool. You know, that's cool. I respect that. But, you know, I just don't see an openness to community an openness to wanting shared tech or an openness to wanting to see your competition rise up with you. I think if your competition is rising up with you, that's a good sign. <laughs> it means the community is getting paid. Like, yeah, it means you're, you're my neighbor is succeeding and I'm succeeding, it means our community as a whole is succeeding. To me, that's so important. And a heritage that's important to us because hash making is so hard. It is, it, 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 and, and it takes a really special person to do it. It takes a very dedicated person to want to, to, to be in a really fucking cold room and, 
excuse my language, but you know, it takes a really dedicated person to to to, to want to do that work. So I like to say, like, if you're a hash maker and you're doing it ethically and you're doing it, you know, and you're doing it from with the love in your heart, dude, you're my brother, you're my sister. It doesn't matter if you're my competition. I want to see you shine. I want to see you, you know, rise up with us too. Um, and that's kind of what that shelf represents is like the other people that we just, we personally all love to smoke. Um, we all go into the, re- you know, we'll, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll each kind of like buy something from everybody and we'll all just sesh out at the end of the day and try everybody's stuff and, and enjoy it, like legitly enjoy it. And it, and I think it's special because coming from a hash maker, you know how hard that person worked to make that gram of hash. So it makes it taste that much better. You're just like, dang, dude, this is good. This is some good stuff. So I love, I love, I love that, that we can offer that, that we can kind of just be the, the different, you know, just be the more positive people in the crowd, just be kind of more the, the peacemakers. Um, that's our goal, <laughs> of course, you know, just being the peacemakers and like, and loving, loving our ha- our other hash makers and loving our other dispensaries too. Um, you know, like that's, that's just the, that's how it should be. Cause it's kind of us against the world. Because there are still parts of the world where people are being hung for cannabis. And that's the reality of it. There are parts of the world where people are getting beat brutally by cop, you know, for cannabis, for the plant. We have a really long way to go. And I honestly, in my real humble opinion, it's like I think that time shouldn't be spent bickering amongst one another for the wrong reasons. I think that it should be spent like making this happen for the rest of the world because it's like us we got to lock arms we got to like it's us against the world especially in the more artisanal zones such as mendocino trinity humboldt sonoma like that's what's going to get us through is that the name of that place you know the name like because that means something that that artisanal cannabis that that means something um there's there's, there's no way we're, we're going to compete in a world market on quantity <laughs> Our three little tiny ass counties compared to, you know, Colombia, Morocco, you know, and other places, Mexico, they have mountainsides, literally have mountain ranges of weed. Yeah, you know, so it's going to have to, we're going to have to lock arms and really represent the quality and craftsmanship of this and how tight knit our community is. Because that's how winemakers are in Bordeaux and they're very tight knit community. And we are, you know, and, and that's what I love about here is we do take care of each other on a more positive note. Like I do see everyone just really take care of each other when, when really needed. And yeah, so Heritage wants to keep that going. You just want to keep them. That's what that hash shelf represents, you know, and we love seeing all the other hash companies shine with us. Yeah. So let's talk about what makes something quality because I feel like you were touching on a point there that was, you know, a favorite of Frenchies, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce the word. <laughs> oh, terroir. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, I know you do a better job than I do. So, yeah. um, you know, talking about these other hash makers, some of them may be working with indoor material. Some of them may be working with outdoor material. But, uh, you know, you're talking about the Emerald Triangle and kind of relating it to wine and the idea that the quality 
of not only the growers, but the genetics, and then also the environment uh, is giving this cannabis. So talk to us a little bit more about as a hash maker, going to the farms with Frenchie or now seeing the material at Heritage, what are you seeing in that sense? In terms of the like what the quality that we're getting at Heritage or depending on region or from Yeah, I guess that wasn't the best question. Basically seeing all this all this resin in the area, I'm curious like what you can comment on on that whole point of of why the area is oh, special, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. So like starting with the product we work with, you know, like I guess the best way so to talk about quality. So we 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 see ourselves as craftsmen, like I said earlier, you know, we we all share a deep respect for the product and and where it comes from and the knowledge, you know, so that's the biggest question that we ask ourselves, you know, and I'm whether it's indoor or outdoor, you know, greenhouse, you know, either way, if the cannabis, you know, if the, if the plant is grown properly and to its full potential, the, res, you know, the result, the resulting buds are going to be spectacular. But outside, you know, like what, you know, ter- terroir, like you were saying, like what makes that, you know, to for, for people who don't know what terroir is, it, it is. It is the set of all environmental factors that affect a crop's phenotype, including unique environmental contexts, farming practices, and a crop's specific growth habitat. And and collectively, these those characteristics they can't be so terroir like the characteristics of terroir is like uh, it relates to everything surrounding. To put it simply, it relates to everything surrounding the environmental factors that give a crop a specific character the specific characteristics in the end product that cannot be duplicated anywhere else and the components of terroir is is the climate which is the life shaper and then you have the land which is the life giver you have the cultivar which is the taste of a place and um and then you have the farmer which is the land steward so the the cultivar, the land, and the farmer. So those elements are directly connecting, connected to everything involving the land, and then the climate. You know, basically, what I'm trying to say is, I don't want to like make it too complicated, but <laughs> there there are sciences. So to put it simply, in in France, they have to prove that these crops cannot be duplicated anywhere else. And it's because of those sciences that go into it, the science of the land, you know, the science of the climate in that area. So that's why Bordeaux, for instance, uh, you can't use like Frenchie likes to say grapes grown in, you know, if you if you make wine in Chile, you cannot say that you cannot put a, a label on it that says Bordeaux. And that's because it's internationally protected because it has been proven that you cannot duplicate that recipe anywhere else in the world because of how those grapes were grown in that specific region 
you know, at that specific longitude and latitude, you know what I mean? Like at that specific longitude and latitude in the world, only those grapes can be fucking, excuse me, they can be grown like that. And that's basically what we experience here in, you know, in places like the Emerald Triangle, where there's a lot of different microclimates. So, and there's a lot of different areas. So um, you could have the same strain, you know, you can grow the same clone or you could grow the same plant in one place and just, you know, a couple miles down the road and grow that up and another plant in a different place. They're, they're going to be different. They're most definitely going to be different. So like I said, so what makes that so special is, you know, you have the land, which is the life giver. You have the climate, which is the life shaper. And then you have the cultivar, which is the taste of the place. And that's something definitely that's like very unique. Yes. And that, you know, if if you examine, you know, the history of how small areas can dominate uh you know, they can dominate the world through the taste of their place. You know, you will notice places such as Bordeaux, France, you know, they did that with wine. Parma did that with Italy. Uh, I mean, excuse me, <laughs> Parma, Italy did that with Parmesan cheese and um, Rome, you know, with Romano cheese. But it's all about the taste. It's about the terpenes with cigars, with wine, with cheese, all those craft prog- products, all of those regions have acquired through their terroir a distinct taste to their product. That's what I'm trying to say is Mendo weed has a very distinct taste. Like outdoor Mendo weed has a very distinct taste. And same with humble weed. Humboldt weed has a very distinct taste. You know, and that that is that is part of that terroir. That's part of the expression. The you know the the taste of the place is the expression of the plant, and the expression of the plant is the expression of the land as well. So that's what makes that really unique too. And how do you keep all these things alive through these small farmers in these kind of difficult conditions? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, God, you know, if the taxes weren't killing everyone. <laughs> I, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to the finances and the, yeah. it Because um, they don't make it easy. And that's the reality of it is they just don't make it easy for, for, for the small farmer. But um yeah, that's, I think that they should, you know, I think the, the the best way is to keep talking about it, to not stop the conversation. Um, I wish, you know, I wish I had more of a solution. You know, I wish we did have more of a solution of, of how to, to, to protect that, you know, how to protect that name and that place. But I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of organizations and there's enough people behind this to, to really care, to really care about that. And at the end of the day, you know, that's what it's going to come to, whether it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now, at, at some point, um, it, it's going to catch on that, you know, that's kind of like, we, 
in this area are known for artisanal kind of artisanally grown stuff, especially the more educated the consumers get. And I think that's the most powerful thing is to educate the consumers on, you know, why this area is so special or why the heritage in this area is so special, because it's also about the genetics too. Um, these genetics, because, you know, you breed uh, a lot of genetics that are bred in this area for a long time do really well here. I wonder why, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it's very special. It's very special. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time for these breeders to get those plants to be where they are. I um, mean, to, to, to have grown in this environment and when they're grown in the environment that they're from, oh my God, they express themselves so beautifully so beautifully you know and that's something i learned from a lot of growers here you know i learned that from my boyfriend you know like of choosing genetics to grow in the area um you know choose something from the area choose something based on your microclimate um and it's always worked it's worked brilliant you know they've always had big beautiful plants didn't mold you know because they're used to that area um, and I think that's really, to me, that's super, super special. Yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, and it seems smart, you know, yeah. if uh, somebody, and that's the other thing is like, it seems that there's like a collection of people in that area that have been doing it for quite some time. And then I would say the other thing is like skill, you know, not everyone necessarily has the same uh skill sets and so there's going to be breeders that probably breed cooler stuff <laughs> you know yeah. and, and then there's growers that can grow that stuff better uh but yeah it, it's interesting i'm curious to see how it'll how it'll all play out but i do think that it's cool uh through a company like heritage seems to be like you said real grassroots and you know the them themselves i think have like a farm right Yep. And a lot of your product comes from there. Yes, Bon Vivant, bon Vivant Farms. Yeah. Um, and that is our, right now, that's our single source, like safety net, <laughs> single source farm. But we, uh, we, we work with a lot of, of course, we work with a, a lot of different farms. And you told me that that's uh, a big part of your gig personally is kind of working with those farms and looking at the material uh, yes. with a few other people. Yes, that that is one of the most important jobs of a hash maker is making the hash. Um, but a hash maker, a good hash maker, if you don't grow your own stuff, um, you you build good relationships with your farmers and you take care of your farmers. You're making sure that there's clear communication. You're making sure that, yeah, you know, you're supporting them. You're taking care of them, communicating with them, and then you get to the point where you start talking about what to grow and for for later and so what can be processed for later and what they would like and what you would like and yeah that's one of the more beautiful most beautiful things i've always loved i've always loved you know just all working with growers all the growers that i've had the opportunity to work with and meet it's been really wonderful and i think that yeah it's paramount to the quality of the product the, the better your relationship with your farmer, 
the better your stuff. Yeah, every time, you know, the better the communication, the you know, it, it it's it's really, you know, and it's all that positive energy that goes into it too. There's a positive relationship too. It just makes it all the much all that much more better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I mean, again, not to keep bringing friendship up, but it, you guys, like in my mind, are so intertwined. <laughs> but he used to always like harp on the fact that, like, as a hash maker, like you said, if you're not growing uh, your own crops, it's like you're you're not the one who's making the quality. You know, you're you're receiving the quality from the farmer. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. I totally agree with that. But, you know, you, you can play a part in not making shitty or bad hash. <laughs> For sure. There's, that. Yeah, there's, there's definitely that. a skill but, to, to yeah. collecting it and uh, drying it and, and whatever else you need to do with it. But, but you can't, at the end of the day. Yeah, you can't do anything with, without it. No, there, there, it's the true testament. It's the true testament of the quality of the, the resin. Like the hash is the true testament as to the quality and how that plant was treated. It really is. It's the, uh, I like to say, or, you know, Frenchie and I like to say it was its final story. The hashish is uh, the plant's life story, kind of. You kind of know what went down, you know, like <laughs> if it's if it's crumbly and just didn't stick together and there's just so much particulate, you're like, oh man, you did not take care of this one at all and sometimes yes you know sometimes yes it is genetics some plants just don't wash we know this yeah some plants just don't wash sometimes you got to find those ones that do wash but the ones that you know that should have washed <laughs> the ones that you know should have dumped a lot of resin and it didn't and it's all crumbly and there's all a bunch of particularity it's green and you're like oh my god oh my goodness that's so bad um <laughs> that right. didn't happen very often because nobody's got time for that. No one's got time to pro take their time to process that. But what, but it is true. You see, you could tell you were like, wow, you handled this material really rough or you didn't really let those glands mature um, or both. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Like you didn't let it mature and you handled it rough. Like, oh, it's just a bad story altogether. And then you have the, the all stars who are just like, they're very delicate the whole time cut it at exactly the right time and it just like makes just the creme the cream of the cream yeah right yeah it's so interesting how the handling plays a big role even in like how the processor is able to take that material then and you know get the best result out of it as well yeah well cool i think this is a good opportunity for a smoke break you cool with that yeah, I'm cool with that. All right, sounds good. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, who you can visit at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com, where you can find the highest grade rosin press on the market. If you make rosin and you value using the highest grade tools in your craft, then I suggest grabbing a rosin press from Powers Plates. I got to handle one of their pro kits for a few days before we gave it away at Coffee and Donuts who Powers Plates also generously helped sponsor. Congratulations, John. And a few things stood out to me. The craftsmanship on their platens is excellent. The platens themselves are beasts on a physical level. They're really impressive. 
the custom color and the multiple tones of red throughout was really beautiful. And throw in the fact that they use all the highest grade components inside their system, which is what really sets their rosin plates apart. Let's just say you can feel the difference. So go grab your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press at powersplates.com or visit them on Instagram at powersplates and use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI, standing for the Hashish Inn, to save $75 off their presses. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. You know, since we were kind of on the subject of hash and we talked about it a little earlier, Tell me what you know about the history of hash or hashish. Yeah. I like to go back, actually, you know, that you asked that. I like to go back to the proposed birthplaces of cannabis, you know, and all of them on the Asian continent. Uh, the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers in China, and, you know, like the foothills of the Himalayas, like Bhutan to the Hindu Kush mountains, Central Asia, that whole, that's kind of like the proposed birthplace of cannabis. And interestingly, the usage of cannabis parallels the timeline of like the end of nomadic life and the birth of agriculture and civilization where most experts believe that is that Central Asia area. And uh, agriculture in China actually has evidence of cannabis, peas, and rice farming that, and it dates over 10,000 years ago, um, which is really interesting, you know, um, to see how, just how far back that goes with us humans, like our relationship with cannabis, that's how far back that goes. It was definitely, you know, cannabis was definitely one of the first plants domesticated by humanity along with a couple hundred other species of crops. You know, and it's interesting, we haven't actually domesticated a new food plant, you know, since the beginning of sedentary life. You know, there's a thousands of varieties of plants that we could eat, um, but we've only actually domesticated a few hundred of them, cannabis being one. Yeah, so, you know, we had this really like special bond with cannabis for quite some time now. And, you know, if you kind of think about like how that relationship started, you know, for humans to, to survive, you know, there are those basic needs for like food and medicine. And like I said earlier, like in Rob Clark's book, uh, Hashish, there's a passage that dates back quite some time that says, what's a monk to do, but to taste a plant and to touch a cannabis plant, you know, and to, to figure out its properties. Um, and that's kind of where um, Chadas is believed to have been discovered in that way, like by touching the plant, is definitely, you know, Chados hand-rubbed resin is one of the oldest forms of cannabis resin collection. And of course, you know, we can't ignore the, the religious correlation around cannabis because it's related to the birth of incense, which was burned for sacred and healing purposes. Um, and that's kind of like the same with hash. It was definitely used, most definitely used for burning for religious and sacred purposes. Um, and, you know, so you think like when they did that, the, the realization that the sense produced, you know, produced by burning materials could kind of like heighten senses and alter perceptions. And uh, in one of Frenchie's articles, 
he referenced something where he said, you know, that, you know, most definitely could have kind of came with our quest with to control fire too as well in that same kind of time you know our quest to control fire and the things we can burn and that whole religious correlation with it but one of the oldest myths concerning hash come from an old story from persia and the arab world around i guess 1100 ad the le- but it's the leg it's it I'm sure you've probably heard of this uh it's the legend of the the old man on the mountain the assassin the assassin it's like uh it's the old man of the mountain is like the he, he terrorized the world with his infamous sect of assassins and the um you know and the sufi master you know he utilized cannabis or hashish um, and so those are some of like the earliest accounts, written accounts of hashish. I believe uh, Rob Clark, Robert Clark also mentions that in his book, Hashish. Yeah, for sure. Um, Funny enough, yeah. um, I think the city was called Alamede or something like that. And uh, like you said, it, it is in current day Iran or Persia. And funny enough, my my dad it was born not very far from there. My dad is from what? very close to the Caspian Sea. Wow. So it's very close to that city. So I thought that was kind of an interesting, weird, funny thing. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that's like, uh, so that's like one of the earliest passages mentioning hashish. You know, we don't really have like solid, solid evidence that shows like when humanity had the means or the tools to collect resin. It's supposedly, you know, it's supposedly the sift, the sieve, because that's what defines a hash maker. That's what defines us is we are a sieving tech. We sieve resin. We collect resin. Um, We keep those glands in tech. (laughs) And so as our goal, you know, so that's the tool. That's the tool that we use is is so you think about how far back the sieve goes. Definitely, of course, goes back to the birthplace of agriculture, because the birthplace of agriculture is our most, you know, it definitely parallels the birthplaces of textile production. And those are most definitely the weave textiles, the weave, you know, that if you think of what the sieve is, it, it is a weave. Yeah. You know, so there's. There's no real like archaeological evidence of sieving cannabis, but however, one of the earliest kind of sieved baskets that were found, like archaeological sieving, like a a grain sifter, was probably a hundred thousand years old, found in Africa. It was like a grain sifter. So, you know, that's kind of evidence of that kind of technology existing that long ago. But really, like the the first sieved hash evidence doesn't really start coming out. Really, like a lot of evidence doesn't start coming out until like the 17th century, and that's kind of like the introduction of tobacco from the New World. Hash and tobacco are married, you know. <laughs> and of course, you know the three companies were that were predominant hashish countries where hashish originated from are Afghanistan, Morocco. Lebanon, of course, have the oldest history. The oldest evidence of of cannabis collection 
I guess, like for, for receiving hash. Rob Clark says in his book, you know, the, the dry plants were like hungover woven material and the heads would fall, you know, touching the plant. Um, and then, then there's the carpet collection, you know, one of the older techniques that people call the carpet collection where the cannabis plants are like threshed tightly over a woven carpet. And, you know, when plants broken up in the carpet and then they beat the carpet to release the resin. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's one way, you know, that's, yeah, one, that was, one that's an older. interesting one. I've, I've yeah. heard of that one too. And yeah, it, it is kind of intriguing to see like the different methodologies, but I did kind of find it a little odd that, yeah, it wasn't until like the sixties or seventies that they started in theory from, I, I think what Robert Clark said, receiving hash or receiving yeah. cannabis, you know? And so before that, I'm assuming it was pretty much all just charas or, or maybe a more crude isolation between the trichomes or not, but yeah, charas incense. You know, yeah, see, I didn't know about the correlation yeah. between between those two things. Yeah, so, and you know, these are all like theories, yeah, or you know, not not and necessary because you know we we don't really know what happened back in the day, but you know, we we can use archaeological evidence and you know evidence and scriptures that date back the best we can do <laughs> right for sure yeah so i'm curious so like you know let's say the the sieving the dry sieving started uh in the 60s or, or something along those lines or at least got popularized i guess you could say it would be at that point then on that i guess people started figuring out that in essence blending or making these trichomes into a mass which is what we talked about earlier being hashish and, and being the idea of like, not only is it the oils within the glands, but it's actually like the cuticle of the gland as well. That's part of this. And that's actually part of what's causing the chemical reaction that it may be in, in that particular sense. If then that's hashish and like that understanding came in the last, I mean, do, I guess that's a better question is like, do you think people understood this kind of extra component that I think Frenchie, you know, he used to refer to as like a press to activate. Right? Yeah. This, yeah. Or this idea, do you think that was like an ancient thing or do you think that that just came along with the, with the invention of dry sifting or with the use of screens and dry sifting? That's a, uh, well, the the main reason why one of the one of the reasons why loose resin glands were pressed together predominantly were for smuggling <laughs> you know it makes it easier to smuggle yeah it makes it compact it makes it easier to transport in general i'm um, not just in general it's definitely a lot easier than hauling a bunch of cannabis plants for sure and and I think, you know, as you play with something in your hands, like being me, like as, as a kid, you know, I used to take gum and try to make like a ball with it or try to like make a perfect square or, you know, and you, you, you work things in your hands or someone who works clay, you work things in your hands. And I think, you know, but to touch, you know, when you touch the resin, like what, but to do a curious human, but to, to make a ball and to, to notice that, oh, it's sticking together. Oh, it 
cuts kind of changing color and somehow the heat of my hand is changing this, you know, consistency. Somehow it makes it better. <laughs> you know, like I'm sure all of these happened at some point, you know, I'm sure all of these, like if, if, if you put this together, it's not going to all fall out and, and you're not going to lose it. So like if you press it together <laughs> and for the psychoactive element, you know, it, it, I know that they understand. I know that they understand for a fact, but how they could explain it could be multiple different ways. It could be religiously correlated. It could be, it could be so many things to explain like why when you press this substance together, uh, you get super like a lot more high, <laughs> super, super high. And it's only like, it's only until science, like actual science, you know, oh, decarboxylation. Oh, that's, that's what's happening. You know, the transformation of THCA into THC. But that's only as late as like that. That's us being able to explain it through science. But I feel personally, I feel really, really deeply. And, and I know Frenchie did too about this really specific thing is where he would say that they could never tell him because he would ask, he would ask like, why, why do you do that? And, and they would just be like, makes it very good, you know, makes it very good. <laughs> but the right. Thing, it was just know, like an inherent to, yeah. kind of uh, and knowledge how many, that they had acquired from. And how many generations, you know, and, and the generations before that and before that, like how, you know, but of course, you know, uh, what's a human to do but to play with this ma you know, sticky stuff, massive sticky stuff? Yeah. So, you know, now as kind of working in a more modern hash making environment, I, you know, I, I think I saw something funny that your uh, boss put up on, on a post where he said he loved having you there and that it was funny to see you be really comfortable, but yet a little uncomfortable. In the lab. <laughs> yeah, dude. I'm just like, yeah, like I, I am. Um, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of responsibility to do that, to, to do, to take on all of that. It's a lot of machinery. It's a lot of maintenance, the whole crew. Um, and most importantly, I don't want to let Kyle down. I don't want my team down. I don't want to, of course I'm nervous, dude. I'm nervous every day. <laughs> And I think that's what that's part of being in the legal market is makes it like, oh my gosh, this hash making just got next level. I used to Jesus just to smoke and say like smoke out other people. But now, <laughs> now I don't want to let my team down because I love them. I think that they're great people. They've been so good to me. And of course I want to reciprocate it. So it is sometimes I feel like oh, there's a, there's a lot on my shoulders that I just want to make them proud. And I know I do. <laughs> I know I definitely do. They're, they're, we make each other proud constantly every day. We have such a pretty badass team. So that makes it all the work. That makes it so much more comfortable at the same time, not comfortable because I care about them. <laughs> yeah. Right. So let's talk about some of the products that you guys are, are putting out or like you called them the other day, SKUs in relation to the discussion we had earlier and even the other day about terminology. So you guys are putting out a, a, a variety of products. Can you kind of tell us 
what you're putting out, what you're calling it, how you're viewing it, and then also how you're educating others about it. Because I've seen that you guys bring in people, it seems like maybe from like dispensary crews to actually come yep. into the lab. Uh, and you told me the other day that you guys did something with uh, bud tenders from another place. So yeah, just talk to us about the SKUs. And then I'll obviously kind of dig in a little bit about like what means what kind of thing. But like I said, also curious to see like how you guys are informing others about the products. Yeah. Um, so the SKUs that we have going on. So we have, of course, we're doing the bubble hash. And we have, uh, and under that bubble hash is we have unpressed loose bubble hash. And we have pressed, traditionally pressed hashish. Tip, and of course, the loose unpressed bubble hash is full melt. So it's basically we have the full melt, and then we have the traditional press, and then we have rosin. So hash from the bubble hash, we will make rosin. And that's predominantly the three main SKUs that we carry. Aside from soon coming, we're, we're looking into infusing pre-rolls and coconut oil. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm assuming the infusion of the pre-rolls and the coconut oil is coming from like solventless. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, yeah. So, but mainly for the hashish or for the hash concentrates for the bubble hash, <laughs> the full melt bubble hash. And then we got our traditional pressed hash and then we got our rosin. Yeah. yeah. So, so here's like a, a super big sticking point that for me that I love bringing up uh, in, in a variety of contexts is like, and you and I kind of tiptoed around this the other day, but like, I think at this point, one of, one of the things that really is important to define is like, I, like I said earlier, I agree that hashish is its own thing per se, but is hashish and hash, are they the same thing? Because I think that in a way also would help clarify a lot of things because I mean, I, I, I obviously do agree that there's a, a concentrate umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but yeah, no, I don't know. <laughs> hashish is, uh, you know, it's pressed hashish. When you're saying hashish, it's pressed because if you're going to call a loose unpressed resin, like just a bunch of loose unpressed resin or even rosin, if you're going to call rosin hashish, it's going to be very confusing for a hashish smoker, uh, especially, you know, someone from Brazil or someone from Spain, you know, like when you're telling them, oh, I have some hashish for you. You know, they're expecting a press ball. You know, they're like, they're expecting like a little press ball or our, our finger, you know, they're expecting some kind of pressed form of hash. And it's like, well, this is really pressed hash, this rosin. <laughs> so it's, yeah, um, I think that can get really confusing hashish and, and hash. Um, but, you know, I, I, if it's pressed, I, I just say if, if it's pressed hash, that's hashish. That's traditionally pressed hashish. If it's just full melt bubble, that's hash you don't put the ish at the end i guess you know <laughs> i i would love to come to a consensus about this like i said i love we're talking about i love that we're talking about this because i really want to gain a consensus on this i really would hope you know hope that as an industry 
we can all agree on this terminology that's being used. Um, and that's that's another important part, like you said earlier, about that bud tender training that we do, that we offer within our um, within Heritage. Um, there's a dispensary, um, Soulful, actually. We've been working with Soulful and their bud tenders and their lovely team, lovely bud tenders. Um, then they come and they join us for a day. Um, we do, we show them washing. We even have them paddling. <laughs> we do a paddle. We do the paddle. We don't do the big, big machine. Um, we keep it really, we keep it super simple for, for, you know, cause that's, that's the point we want. We want them to understand it as easily as possible. So we do the paddle and then the Bryantist, he'll go into rosin. He'll start squishing rosin, talking about different consistencies of rosin, whether you're doing fresh press or, or the batter consistency, taffy pulling. Um, and then I will go into pressing hash to print, you know, just Frenchy cannoli style pressing hash with a hot water bottle and showing them, you know, and then we go into a PowerPoint kind of towards the end and we kind of go into the more artisanal part of hash making and the history of hash and the history of rosin even and just kind of the science behind it. And that's really important. And we, oh, yeah. And the most important part, we go through terminology because the bud tenders are so important. It is just really important for they play, all of us play a very important role, of course, but the bud tenders play a very important role, especially in their, their level of education on these products and the terminology that they're using because they're the ones using that terminology. Therefore, the customer is going to use that terminology. Um, and like I said, they are part of the industry, the bud tenders. They are part of of the success of us gaining a consensus on the terminology that we're using. Um, so part of that bud tender education is like kind of really defining what the difference between like live resin. Uh, live resin is a really good one because live resin is being used to 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 kind of insinuate this is a a BHO product. It is live resin, but it was made from a live whole plant, our fresh frozen. But it it insinuates that it was. But that's not fair, you know. And it's the right terminology. It, it to me at least, or and to us at Heritage, you know, we like to be very clear because live resin that is the state at which it is being processed. So you are processing either live material or you're processing dried material. That does not really, that should not be the word that you use to describe the process. Because we have bubble hash, fresh, you know, live resin bubble hash, but it's live resin bubble hash. It should be the same, you know, it's, I don't think it's okay to just slap live resin on the box and like, okay, so now the customer has to kind of guess what process this was made from and like, what does that mean? <laughs> but it doesn't tell me anything. It tells me which state you process it. It doesn't tell me what the product is and what it is, is it's a solvent product. It's a BHO or it is, you know, but it, but. And nothing wrong with that. But I think we should just be clear. Like, it's fair to be clear on those words. And it comes down to the bud tenders 
really utilizing those words correctly more than just us talking about it. Um, it takes us educating butt tenders. So at Heritage, we're a big, and, and anyone that we work with, we, we encourage them to bring their employees to, to wash some hash with us so that we can, we can educate them and get, get all of us on the same page of talk about talking about this product correctly, delivering information correctly to the public. Um, and, and, and honestly, we, we, we just want, we just want to open the conversation. We want to open the conversation to everybody and we want everyone to agree on this. It's not just, you know, what we feel is the correct thing, but if we get enough of a consensus, then that's what it's going to be. Agreeing on like, especially the labeling of these boxes, people have the right to know the process that you use to, to collect this product. There's nothing, you know, like I think that people should be aware. I think that, you know, and, and, um, it's fair. It's just fair. It's fair to, it's fair to the customer and it's not fair to have to make the bud tender like, hmm, you know, live resin. So I'm assuming that this is a solvent product because it just says live resin on the box, you know, but us, you know, but, you know, we'll make go the extra way to say, hey, this is a, a live resin run of some bubble hash. <laughs> right. No, it, I, I agree. I think it's really important because, uh, like you said, you know, for example, butt tenders are uh, the face of these businesses and, and really these businesses a lot of times are, you know, representing obviously like a lot of small farms and uh, you know, if they're not informed, then unless the customer is really informed and like knows exactly what they're looking for, yeah. then they're not the most like reliable source yeah. of, and, of information. <laughs> and there's always those, those kind of real world, not everything is like perfect in these rose tinted glasses that we can educate all the bud tenders because they're, they're having, you know, being in retail now, you will not, our, our bud tenders are amazing, but I've seen in other retail areas where um, sometimes they have a hard time with retention. They have a hard time with retention and employees, and it's hard to constantly train a new employee and to get them motivated, to get right. them excited, to get them to care, to get them to care where this product actually fucking came from. I was, I do, Chiragam, I was in a, I was in a dispensary, like just not like maybe like a couple months ago, or it was like, no, it was longer than that. It was like a year ago. I, but I did go into a dispensary here locally in the area and they had some Frenchie cannoli product that I worked on. And, uh, oh man, like I was like, oh man, I see, I see this stuff on the shelf. I didn't know what happened with it. Cause you know, it went to the distributor and you're like, okay, you know, it right. goes out into the world. Uh, so, but I saw it on the shelf and I was like, Hey man, you know, I asked the bud center. I was like, tell me about that product. That looks pretty cool. <laughs> and it was funny cause I was wearing a Frenchie cannoli hoodie. I mean, granted the, the, the embroidery is on the back, but you know, it's like, right. no, dude, come on, read your cross. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I kind of was just like, Hey, tell me about that product. And he was like, I don't really know. And I was like, you don't really know. What do you mean you don't really know? That's the peanut butter breath that came from Nate, Higher Heights. That dude's badass that growing. And like we ran that and like put my heart into that, bro. <laughs> I didn't say that to him, but that's what my heart was saying. I was like, oh my God, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting, um, you know, coming from or looking at it from the other, other that, side. All of that, the, the person who bred 
the, the peanut butter bread, you know, to the person who grew it, to the person who trimmed it, to the person who are, you know, not trimmed, but, you know, like to the person who cut it and ran it, you know, to the, to the hash makers, to the person who put it in the box, you know, and put the label on it. Oh, the whole chain, you know, the person who drove it to the store, the person who put it on the shelf, all for this person to say, I don't know, <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> But I guess that happens and, you know, uh, you know, it's always like that with products. There's so many hands that go into it and so many, the whole mass effort. Um, but it's just, again, one of those things that, you know, if you want to really true, be a true craft, you want to be a craft brand and represent that, that kind. If that's the company that they choose to be, those are the things that, that matter. Those conversations are the ones that, ones that matter. It's the story of the product and talking about the farms and where it came from and getting the consumers to really start asking themselves those questions like where did this come from who grew this uh very important questions to ask yeah and, and how are, and how yeah. was it growing too yeah people do it with beef people do it with meat you know what ranch did this come from who, who raised this cattle it's, that's the thing that's happening too where did this coffee come from <laughs> yeah you know where's the coffee come from it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's the same way. So let's talk about your, you called it safety net, but it's your in-house hash line, which is coming from Bon Vivant Farms. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I saw something that he posted a while back that piqued my interest. Uh, and it was a long quote, and I'm probably not going to get all the best points out of it, summarizing it. but. It was something along the lines of like, hash is cool, hash is great, hash making is cool, but I feel like the majority of people are missing out on a lot of flavors because people only want to wash fresh frozen, which leads to people having, uh, you know, similar things on on their menus. And uh, I see that you guys wash both dry slash cured material and you do fresh frozen. So talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in like the differences of resin, what you like in, in one versus the other and anything else you want to add? Yeah. Well, with Bon Vivant Farms, you know, I say that like, so they are our main in-house farm and that's really beautiful because they have such a great crew. They have such a great crew. Um, the talent on that farm definitely makes all the world of the difference in the the quality of the product that we get. And I think that's one of the good things that Kyle's really had down pat for a long time is having his, you know, a really good crew behind creating such a beautiful product consistently time and time again. That recipe works. And that's really good. And that's what when we love, you know, we love that that's our our flagship farm, like um, that we represent. And then we have our, of course, we have the other farms that we also work closely with. Few select farms that share, you know, really the same values when it comes to treating the product with a lot of care. So I think that in in terms of those values that we have that I said that we like to work with farms where we share those similar values. It's those similar values of 
the appreciation for a good cured bud a lot of the time, you know, the appreciation for what it takes for a good cured bud. That is an art form. And that's what people, that's what I feel like there's, there's a lack of respect for that. I will wash that all day <laughs> if you do it good, because I have, I've had such, and, it, and, and there's just something in the transformation of the terpene profile over time. Kind of reminds me of chocolate. When chocolate is first made, for instance, like a candy bar, when it's first made, like Halloween chocolate, doesn't really taste as good as the candy bar you get on the shelf because the candy bar on the shelf had a quite a bit of time to, to sit, but the most of the time, but the, the Halloween candy is like mass produced. It's made to go out and be sold like super. So it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever noticed it kind of has a different taste. I've noticed it. Um, but it's like, you know, when, when those ingredients or those things, those chemicals, because at the end of the day, the chemicals, when they have time to sit together, you know, they create something together. And it's the same thing with those cannabinoids, those terpenes, and the, you know, the plant. Like I said, it's, it's art form. It's almost hard to describe the, trans, the, the transformation of the, the, the palate. Of course, those more volatile terpenes are going to obviously off gas. Um, and that's why you get a lot of those in the fresh frozen runs. You get a lot of those real volatile terpenes that are, oh, they're going to off gas. And, and, I don't mind, and a lot of those, those more volatile terpenes, they're very like, you know, they're very intense. Not a lot of people really just like, like that super, that super intense terpene profile. Some people actually want like a more like mellow, like very gassy, you know, like a real mellow, good terpene profile. Cause for instance, that, that white thorn rose that we ran, um, that was dried and cured material. But that terpene profile was unlike anything I've ever smelled. That's from Huckleberry Hill Farms, uh, the White Thorn Rose. Oh, that that terpene profile was amazing. Dried and cured material. You know, we will rent some fresh frozen of it, of course, because we love it. You know, there's nothing against fresh frozen, but it's just because um, it's they're just both different. You know, like everyone kind of has this stance of where everything has to be one way or another, especially in this country, in our world, everything has to be black or white. And it's never going to be like that. It's never going to be like one is better than the other with anything. It's like, they're all very, very different and they're all very much their own thing. And they're very much on their own art form. And it's very much dependent on your mood or your preference or, and there's, there's something for everybody. Um, I just think that with, you know, I like to say there's a lot of Kool-Aid drinkers, you know, when there's a trend, the trend takes off and like, that's the new thing. And that's the thing. And that's like, that's, that's it. You know, that's, that's the new thing. That's how it is now. And sometimes, yeah, you know, sometimes we're, we make it, of course, like that's how we evolve as people. We, and as a, as a society, we have to make, we have to build and, and make advancements. But, you know, however, the, one is better than the other thing, you know, it's just like, it's its own thing. And um, I feel like we just kind of like forget the, the the respect of a really good dried and cured flower. Um, because you can grow weed, you can grow as much weed as you want. If you don't know how to dry it, it's just boof. 
you can have the best genetics and grow good weed, but if you don't dry that weed correctly, oof, get out of here with that. <laughs> but if it is, it's a whole nother story and it is an honor to run. It is an honor to run into some hash, especially because they did it so well. And that's to be commended. That's to be respected because of how hard that is. Like people want to hate on it. It's like, I would love to see you try, dude. I would love to see you try to grow that genetic and dry it like this dude did and then run it into hash and see if you get the same thing. Like, <laughs> you know how hard that is? It's super hard. Yeah, you just like have that respect for that, that craft and that art form. And I think definitely something we can all do better is just having that, that respect for each other. And how, you know, and respect, having a respect for how hard each process is and not, not kind of going, well, one's better than the other. That's just personal preference. Everyone has, has a personal preference. And do you think on the technical side, washing material that has been cured properly allows you to wash varieties that you may not be able to wash in fresh frozen or it just doesn't make sense, you know, return wise? Huh. Well, to me, if the resin heads are there, like if it's a hash plant, especially if those resin heads are are, are going to dump and they're going to be good for washing, whether it's live or dried and cured, you know, those resin heads are there. Those same amount of resin heads are there. But I think a lot of the times in my experience, the terpene profiles have a lot to do with that, especially like it changes. So like some fresh frozen plants, the terpene profiles is like, whoa, it's like so oily and just like does not wash good for some reason as fresh frozen. I was like shocked because, you know, like the dried and cured of it was fantastic. Um, and it washed really well and it yielded really, really well. But the fresh frozen, um, I've washed some plants and yeah, it just didn't like, it just didn't yield well. Like, or, or when, even when it was like even a little more fresh, like the, like the, the plant itself was a little bit more fresh. It was like kind of interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think of a strain, you know, I almost want to say like cherry limeade was one where Frenchie and I, we washed it at one point, didn't have success with it. And then it, when it was younger and then, and then we washed it later and then somehow with the same stuff, <laughs> somehow, you know, it washed a lot better and it smelled a lot better. It was really interesting. I just wish I, I could explain that with science. <laughs> I wish I could, I could back that with science, but at this point it's all just from, you know, speaking from experience of, Having having washed certain things that washed good when they were fresh or just freshly cut, or versus you know when they've sat for a couple of weeks drying. Interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is super interesting. Uh, and you know, not not doing it firsthand. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I can only rely on other people's uh, experience. You know, so it's always intriguing to me to hear. And I mean, you know, obviously these are just speculations, but you know, like the hardening of the cuticle in the drying and curing process could have something to do with that. And then the other thing that really kind of piques my interest in, in bringing up the point that you brought up earlier in the conversation of 
it being equivalent to a fruit or the trichome uh, being equivalent to a fruit is, you know, a, another big sticking point, I think, for Frenchie was the idea of like ripeness, right? And so I, mm-hmm. I think in the end, it really came down to, in essence, ripeness being where like a trichome is at the point where it, if it's literally just like touched a bit, it's just coming off. But do you think that, you know, seeing so many genetics, do you think that that varies? more from genetic to genetic or is it just kind of like an across the board where like if the resin is ripe the resin heads should just all come off i've definitely seen that dimensions like like frenchy likes to say the dimensions of ripeness and you can see it under a microscope clearly you know you see some bigger heads and then you see some like slightly smaller heads I mean, I think, you know, in, in a plant's lifetime, they're always going to have various sizes of microns. But like, like, it's like a fruit tree, you know, when it's predominantly done, it's predominantly done, you know, like the, the apples on a apple tree, they're going to start to turn red. It's the fruit. But what you said about the cuticle, yeah, I agree with that, man. Like I just, there's something about the cuticle and it hardening over time. Um, and certain cute and the certain genetics, like it's almost like the cuticle is not as as thick as the cuticle on some other plants. And uh, I've always wondered, you know, some, you know, there's been talks of, you know, like there's there's kind of you can kind of correlate uh, a you know land race or genetic from like the Hindu Kush mountains based on the environment around it, you know, it's very dry, windy, and dusty. So those plants are very short. They're very stocky. The buds are very tight. Those those resin glands are be a lot more grainier and hard because it's dry, it's windy, it's dusty, it's hot. It's very cold too. You know, extremes, a lot of extremes. So that that's how that plant adapts to that area over time. And then the same, you know, in Southeast Asia, so it's going to have a different cuticle on on the resin, but in Southeast Asia, where it's hot, humid, like super humid, these plants—they're taller, they're lankier, you know, they're they're the nodes are looser, and they're definitely, you know, you know those that, that stickier, more stickier type of plant because of so humid and hot, and um, and yeah, of course, the cuticles on those plants are very different those genetics and of course everything here is such a big mashup <laughs> so you never know what you're really going to get with the, the kind of cuticle that's on this on this plant right now you know we can't just have like a dead right. it kind of changes every time it's kind of interesting yeah but, it like, is. but yeah but you have your old yield faithfuls like sour diesel and usually typically will do really well for you yeah, there definitely seems to be some staples and then like, you know, newer staples like GMO. Which yeah, GMO. Is, everybody yeah. runs, everyone runs <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, I know, now. but it's so good. <laughs> I do. I, I like it. No, no, I, I like it too. I, I just, it's it's like, I think, yeah, it's one of those things where like everyone seems to have like a version of it. Yeah, or some kind of cake. There are all too. kinds of cakes out there. <laughs> So let's talk about like, you know, the strains a little bit, not necessarily. I've seen you guys watch some cool, interesting stuff. I think you mentioned one earlier 
Um, and then I know you've also been doing stuff like the sneaker doodle and, but I, I've seen you guys run some other kind of in, intriguing stuff. And I'm curious, somebody brought up a point to me recently that they felt that this doesn't get talked about enough in general is your wash cycle number to the yield percentage. So like, what are you typically seeing in these genetics when you're washing them? Are you seeing a lot uh, of them produce in usually your first cycles, in your second cycles? And do you have like a preference? Do you prefer genetics that produce in any kind of uh, specific wash? Because I know, uh, for example, Frenchie, he used to wash a lot, I felt like. Like he would wash the material very thoroughly and he'd do tons and tons of washes. And so uh, you have quite a bit of experience with that. So I'm curious, like what you've seen. Yeah, I've seen, um, well, Frenchie's right. You're, you're going to, you keep getting resin heads. You really do. Like you keep, it, it will keep yielding. Um, you can go, you know, we've gone 12, 12 times more just to, and and there's more resin heads coming out to answer your questions about you know ge, you know certain genetics when washing and and seeing if if the wash comes you know if more comes in the first dump or second and and to me to answer that the best it's 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 the grower when they cut it too it's when it was harvested uh, makes a big big difference uh, because that's that def- ultimately defines the ripeness of those heads. And, you know, the bigger those heads or the, the more ripe they were, the more you're going to have, on, you know, like your, your, your first dump, your second dump. The first dump to me is always kind of like, um, especially with dried, dried material. The first dump to me is, like you're going to have that more like particulate in that dump and probably those more overripe heads, not all the time, but I've seen, I've seen that I've seen like a little bit more where the first wash wasn't that wasn't as nice as the second dump. The second collection is like, wow. The first one was like, oh, it's like particulate in it. And it was like, or almost like the resin heads were like overripe or maybe just not good. Uh, like busted maybe with, with the, to, to go back to, how you were saying, sorry, I almost, I have to go back for it to, to get no, back you're to good, it for you're a good. second. But you were talking about with going so many washes, like going past 12 washes and stuff. I found that yes, yes, you will. You will get, you will, you'll keep, you'll yield and you'll, you'll, you'll know when you're stopped yielding because it'll just be so much to the point where you're like, oh my God, do I just want to keep going? We're like, how much? For a personal stash, dude, yeah, I'm gonna smoke collections number seven and eight. I've seen number seven and eight be like, oh, like that's that's a good amount. Like I'd still smoke that, dude. Like especially for a head stash, like I'd still smoke that. But on a producing level, when you have to honor an eight-hour shift, because people have lives, you know, employees have lives <laughs> outside of the world, you know. Um, it's a little different now, you know, we have to kind of consider those things of like, okay, like what, where are we going to cap this at so that we can get another run in today, at least to maximize our day in the lab. That's kind of one of the decisions that come into factor 
when we're when we're talking about washing something. But if it's really good material, you know, we'll put the extra time in. If we know that's thing, if it's yielding, we're going to put the extra time in to do those extra pulls. So yeah, for us, it depends on like the material and whether it, it it's worth the man hours and the time to put that extra effort in. Like, is that melt? Like, if it's the melt, then yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> if it's if it's just like, uh, you know, it's just doing all right, you know, like it's probably not going to be like full melt. Um, we're going to cap it early. We're not going to go too too deep into it. At the same time, you know, my 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 inner self is like resin is so precious. It's precious to me. Um, like there it, there are still resin heads left on that plant. You know, it's like uh, so. You know, part of me is like, but at the same time, we have to honor that eight hour shift. We have to honor, you know, our employees' times and maximize our day and try to make those those executive decisions. You know, that's kind of what it takes now. You know, it can't. I, I would, you know, like I'm down to go 12 hours. I don't know how down the team is. <laughs> right. <12 hours. laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll sleep there if I have to, but like, it's not like that anymore. You know, I mean, it can be if you want it to be, but you know, at what point are you going to push your crew so hard? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, it's just an interesting uh, thing to see through you and like through how things have changed, how something like that kind of changes. And like you, to a certain degree, it's like you almost have to prioritize uh, certain things, you know, and there's a, there's another batch coming that you got to do more washes on surely uh, and these types of things. So it, it really is interesting to see the balance. And I'm curious, like, do you wash the, dry material and the fresh frozen material in a similar style or is there a little variation in that to be honest we haven't actually um started washing our live material yet um we have it actually coming down the pipeline because we just got our like a machinery it took forever to get certain components like our water chiller and of course our ice machine took a long time but our water chiller you know we don't want to start without a water chill we don't we're not going to run fresh frozen without cold water it's not conducive <laughs> to, to you know to, to working with fresh frozen and also um yeah so at first you know we had to because we're a new company you know we, we just opened in march right um even though like the combined you know we have lot a combined knowledge of 30 plus years maybe even 50 years of knowledge in that building more, you know, like it's pretty intense. The, the caliber of knowledge in that building and the, the skill sets that we have is really amazing. So, but nevertheless, regardless of our experiences as a whole, you know, we're still quite a young company. We were, we, you know, just started pumping this out. So of course, yeah, we we're waiting. COVID, you know, did not help with getting machinery in. So, um, yeah, I can yeah, imagine. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, it's just like, you know, now, now, and we, we wanted to just game plan correctly for that. But yes, now we will, of course, we have our, our farm fresh frozen come in here shortly. So, yeah, I'll have to get back to you on that of how the difference in that is for us. Yeah, you know, I'm curious. And my, I, yeah, my experience in the past, it, it's just a stickier situation. <laughs> got to move fast, got to be cold, 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 cold. The colder everything is, the better. 
but yeah, with even if you're running dried and cured material, might as well still have it as cold as you would for fresh frozen. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, at what yeah. point do you decide, like, what the material is going to end up like, or what skew that becomes? Is it going to be the full melt? Is it going to be rosin? Is it going to be pressed? Who decides that, and and why? So we've been working on some jet fuel flour. Uh, we've been prepping it to wash, um, dried and cured, of course. But um, uh, the oh, what what was the question? Sorry, I, I need a no, no. You're good. Yeah, it's to the go question. <laughs> the question was, how do you decide, uh, or at what point, and who decides what becomes uh, of the of the washes? Oh, that's right. Yeah, so. I can, like with certain things, I can tell. I can kind of tell when we're working, when I just see the bud. Uh, like for instance, this we're, this week we we're working on something called jet fuel and just looking at the bud, just smelling the bud, just looking at the resin. I was like, that's going to be some full melt bubble hash. I already know that. And we were, you know, the team is like, yep, full melt bubble. And of course we washed it today. Of course, so sticky, so gassy, so smelly, full melt bubble, for sure. So we kind of know when we see the material. Um, I make that decision as well as uh, my partner, Brian, the Briantist. You know, it's a, it's a good team effort. Even even um, our hash makers, uh, Richard and Steve, you know, they'll chime in. You know, it's a whole team effort. Yeah, but so we'll all make that decision together a lot of the time. Is but and that's that's kind of the point when it, it that's the the true test is when it comes out of the freeze dryer. We all kind of like yeah, well, uh, like I'll I'll take a little bit of it, squish a little bit in my fingers, maybe even do the lighter test. It also depends on what skews we just released or what what we plan on putting out. Like oh, you know, like we kind of like need a rosin, and this would be kind of good for a rosin. I feel like this would make really nice rosin, so. Um, we'll send that to rosin. Next one will be bubble. Or if some, like for instance, the apple fritters, we did a rosin release of the apple fritters, but the uh, we have some more apple fritters coming down the pipeline from from the the grower, uh, which is Gold Standard Farms. Um, so uh, the apple fritters from Gold Standard Farms will be running again. Only that time, this time we'll probably do a full melt bubble with it because we already did a rosin with it, um, and it was so good, so you know, so melty, so good. Yeah, that one would also make a good full melt bubble. So we'll tell on the meltiness of it. Because if you're going to do a full melt, it's got to melt. Um, if it doesn't melt, but we think it's going to make bomb rosin, not always the case, but yeah, we'll send it to rosin. Otherwise, if it's just really not good, it's going to go to, you know, not, 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 it's not like not good in a bad way, but if it's not going to make, make, meet the standard of a full melt hash or meet the standards of a good rosin, a worthwhile rosin, uh, we're definitely going to send that edibles or coconut oil, even pre-rolls. If it's good enough for pre-rolls, we'll send it to pre-rolls. Yeah. And then we're, we we also want to introduce, the, like, you know, because people also just kind of want a bowl topper sometimes. They don't even want, like, the stickiest full melt stuff. Sometimes people want real high quality hash, good full melt, like, I mean, well, not full melt, but good bubble, but just like bowl topper bubble. I love that stuff too. You know, I can respect a good bowl topper too. So that's kind of another thing where we're also considering putting out is something that like didn't quite make the cut for the full melt skew, 
but still really, really good, really good to throw on your bowl or really good to throw on your joint at a really good price point, of course, you know? Yeah. I was going to actually ask you like if within your bubble hash, there were like grades. So yeah, that sounds like absolutely. that's a possibility moving forward. And, and like you said, you guys uh, just opened earlier this year. And I know even within the year, it's been like probably a big challenge to kind of get everything going and off the ground. And I saw some cool machinery that you guys got that I'll definitely uh, ask about uh, a little bit down the line, but I feel like this may be a good opportunity for a second smoke break. You cool with that? I'm totally cool with that. All right, cool. I'd like to thank every person that makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to continue to produce episodes, including episode 32 with Cherry Blossom Bell, and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including The Hash Hive, Meltwalkie Jeff, Cody in Oregon, Alex in North Carolina, Mario, Jonah, and Ryan in Illinois, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, our good friend Jendo420, Nick the Intern, the crew at Heritage Hash Mendocino, Gastown Fire, and their Green Cedar Retreat in Tofino, Canada, now open to the U.S., David at Rosin Evolution, my dude, the real cannabis Chris, MTS Farms, Pressing for Show on the Big Island, Hash and Heddies in SoCal, the homie Big C, Depeche 44 in Connecticut, and the homies from Mission Hill Melts now in Maine. Thank each and every one of you. I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So let's talk about how you got to Mendocino, because you alluded to this a little earlier. You did get into some trouble uh, when you were living abroad. So tell us a little bit about that experience, because you were born here in the States, but uh, you lived a lot of your early childhood in Japan. Um, yeah, I. Uh, so I was born here and I moved my father's uh, um, in the military. He was in the military. Uh, Navy. We are a Navy family. And he got orders to Japan. So we moved to Japan and I lived in Japan for 10 years. And then we got orders to Southeast Asia. And I don't really like to say where (laughs) in Southeast Asia. Um, But yeah, so we got orders to Southeast Asia. And and, uh, that's actually where, so I spent seven years so I had 10 years in Japan and I spent seven years in Southeast Asia. And that's actually where I found, kind of really found my love for cannabis. But the first time I smoked cannabis, actually, at the time I was uh, working in the restaurant. So I come from the food and beverage industry and uh, I was working in the restaurant. I had a friend who wanted to smoke with me and I told him and he said, he was like, Hey, you know, I want like, come smoke with me after work. And, uh, I told him, no, absolutely not. Cause the first time I smoked weed, I smoked it with my friends and we smoked some pretty bad stuff. Like it was, it was obviously laced with something and it was, I had a really terrible experience. It smelled terrible. It smelled like steel wool. Like it was just the worst. Um, so I thought it was like the worst of the worst. And mind you, you know, I come from a a serious, my mom is Filipino. So she's, and she also was, you know, so she's very uh, religious. She's very, uh, very Christian. Um, my, my father, military, 
what, you know, very conservative, super conservative. So those two factors too, at the same time, I wasn't really like, wasn't really educated about cannabis. Um, I thought it was something really, really bad. And then when I smoked it, I was like, oh my God, like when it was bad can or like laced with something, it was like even more bad. But my friend at the restaurant, when he asked me to smoke, he said, you know, and I told him like, no way, that stuff is terrible. I've never smoking can, I'm never smoking weed ever. And he laughed at me and he was like, oh man, you stupid Ongmo. And Ongmo is a word they use for foreigner. And he's like, you're stupid Ongmo girl. He's <laughs> like, you don't even know. He's like, there's like two grades on this island. There's A grade and B grade. And you literally just got B grade stuff. He was like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like you have to have the A grade stuff from Thailand. Um, He's like, smoke that with me and then tell me if that's the worst stuff you've ever had. So I gave it another try. And until this day, I have not smoked anything that's made me laugh so hard like that. I mean, it was also my first time smoking too, but I laughed. Right. Like we, it was like a shroom high. Like we laughed for hours. Of course, I didn't know what a shroom high was back in the day, but now I do. But, <laughs> but it was like, you know, that, that same, like that's, that's the closest I've got was to like a shroom high. Like this, it was laughing so hard just for hours and then super hungry, super, super, super hungry. Um, so that's kind of what struck my love for cannabis. Um, and it was unfortunate because that area is a very Muslim dominant area. Um, so even more so like cannabis, Muslim dominant area, also very conservative Chinese dominant area as well. So, wow, cannabis is so bad there. Cannabis is so like not okay. And it's unfortunate because, yeah, I did get into a little trouble over there with it. And and they treat you really bad. You know, they well, they make you feel really bad. They make you feel like a criminal. Like they make you feel like you're you're one of the serial killers. <laughs> And it's not fair. It's not okay. But of course, you know, so I, I actually had to leave. I could not stay there. I was no longer welcome there. And I had to leave. And I uh, came to California. Uh, yeah, and that was hard, you know, coming from, especially being Filipino and Asian, you're like, oh, my God, I dishonored my family. I'm terrible. Oh, geez. You know, dishonoring your family in an Asian family is like the worst. So, <laughs> you know, here I am, like feeling like I've dishonored, you know, just like brought dishonor upon me and my ancestors. <laughs> and uh, and it's funny because my brothers, I, as much as I talked to them, we were we were best friends, but they never told me what they did. My my so my my middle brother Leo, everyone knows him as Leo Stone with Aficionado. He um, my oldest brother Leo. He was in the military um, and he got out of the military and he had some, you know, he did have PTSD um, and we really did help him with that. So that's actually kind of his story and how he found it. And he ended up in San Diego with my oldest brother um, and they both were working in a dispensary and got into cannabis that way. But I did not know this at all. I had no idea because we could never talk about that. That is something that, especially um, with how monitored, like how they monitor, uh, monitor uh, phones in in that area, and him and being in the particular military position that he was in before, he's just not a, not not comfortable with talking about it. 
So I never knew what they were doing, but it's so funny because, you know, I thought I was in so much trouble. I was like, my, you know, I had nowhere else to go but to go to California with my brothers, my my only other family. Because been, you know, I never grew up in the United States, know nothing about the United States, left when I was a baby. Uh, so really grateful that I had my brothers here. And I thought, oh, man, I thought they were going to be so mad at me when I got off that airplane. I was so nervous because I had no idea. And it was so funny because what? When I arrived in San Diego, my my brother Leo had just left to the mountains to start his journey, you know, to start, you know, he had left with his mentor who, you know, who took him under his wing. And um, yeah, he left to Laytonville. <laughs> I didn't get to see him because he had already left to the mountains. And when my, my oldest brother picked me up at the airport, he was like, oh, man, you're totally cool, man. Leo just left up to the mountains to go ahead, you know, to go do the farm thing. Like, it's chilling. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then so he was doing the farm thing. Leo was doing, you know, like, but he was really doing, you know, that he was really living the bush life, like, for real. And my, my oldest brother, too, eventually joined him. But it was the kind of life where you pitched up the tent next to your plants and you know, slept next to your plants with your dog and your rifle. And, you know, it's a very hard living conditions. It takes a very special person who really, 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 really loves that. Like my brother and what helped him get through those, those really tough times of having PTSD from the military. Um, really, it really helped him get it. Cause he, he was kind of like, I could tell, I could see a really big difference in him um, you know, he just kind of like, wasn't, wasn't like the, the happy chipper dude that I used to know. And then after he started working with the plants, like he came back and I was like, oh, dude, my brother's back. Like, there he is. I'm like, so grateful for cannabis for that reason. Um, but yeah, so, and, and it's interesting because, um, my parents were so against it. They were so upset with the path that he chose. And, and like, I was like, man, that's, that's a brave thing to do, to choose that path and to do that, that life, you know, that real outlaw style life and, and to commit to that. And he did, and he never gave up, dude. He keep trying no matter how hard it got, you know, no matter the conditions, then was so inspiring. And I didn't hear from him for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, uh, Leo came down from the mountains, man, it's been a minute since I've seen this guy and he finally comes down from the mountains and this dude has a big old beard. I don't even know this guy anymore. <laughs> I can't even recognize him. And he was so excited. I've never seen this guy so happy in my life. And like he, he had, his eyes were like sparkling. And the first thing he did, he had like a bunch of ball jars and pounds of weed, like the most weed I've seen in my life, which, which is a little to me now. But at the time I was like, oh my God, that's a lot of weed. Right. <laughs> I was like, what have you, what the, what have you been doing? And like, he's like, well, check it out. You know, he bought us a brand new bong from a, a, a smoke shop in Laytonville. And uh, it was a nice big old bong, you know, cause he hasn't seen me and my brother for a minute. But he didn't let us like just dig in and smoke all the weed. He was like, no, 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 no. Like we're going to sit down and we're going to try each bag in this new bong that I brought. Like he was like explaining the taste of a place. He was like, no. So he was, he was explaining, my Leo was explaining like, he was like, so this is in the pines right here. And it has this type of flavor palette. And he just went into it and he was like, so now we're going to smoke it. And like, 
he wasn't even there for, you know, he literally just got to San Diego, <laughs> busted out all this weed, uh, wanted us to try each flavor because he was saying it's more about, it's more than just getting high. He's like, I learned it's about the genetics and it's about the taste. And like, it was this whole new thing. And I was like, man, this guy's on to something else. And then he went back to the mountains, never saw him for a while. The next time I see this guy, I see him at the 2012 High Times Cup in San Bernardino. And it was my first High Times Cup ever. And I have to be honest with you. It was like, to me, coming from a place where people got caned and hung for cannabis, that High Times Cup was like Harold and Kumar making it to White Castle. Like, <laughs> like I was like, oh, it's raining joints and there's just free things. So cool and everyone's smoking and like there's awesome music. Like this is unreal. People are just expressing themselves and like, and it was really like still very heady, still heady times, you know, like you got all like, like it very, very much the head the heady culture and I saw my brother's booth and I was expecting Leo's booth to look like everybody's else, like everybody else's booth, pretty heady, you know, like, and which is cool, which is dope. You know, I love, I love some glory days. I love that. But his booth caught me off guard so much because it, he had one, he had an oriental carpet. He had a jewelry case. He had two leather chairs, you know, and a beautiful black and gold sign. He had menus, leather menus of, of his of, of their seed release, aficionado seed release that year. The only booth that looked like that, I swear, that is the only booth that looked like that. And that was the first time I met Frenchie was at that 2012 High Times Cup. Um, and my brother was so excited because uh, he had just won the Emerald Cup. He had won the Emerald Cup right before that event. So he was just so juiced and like Frenchie was working with him. He really wanted me to meet Frenchie. Partly him and Frenchie had the connection because Frenchie lived in Japan the same time that I lived, me and my brothers lived in Japan. Um, so that's how they connected really instantly. We didn't know each other, of course. But yeah, he lived in Japan the same time, you know, so we, we shared that. And that that's another reason why my brother was like, oh, man, like, I know that you really love hash. And, you know, because the, the first time I smoked hash was I, I, you know, I made it and, you know, I made it and um, like I was into it ever since. And my brother knew that. And he was like, oh, dude, like I partnered with a hash maker and I, I really want you to meet him. So that's a big reason why I came to that 20, 2012 High Times Cup. He wanted me to meet Frenchie and he wanted me to meet his crew and to see what he was up to. And I was just so blown away. I was one, very proud of him, but I was just like, dude, I, you took this to the next level. Like you softened it up for the crowd. You like really made it like something very artisanal. Like you, you represent like the, the, the product for what it is. It's like really like, wow, dude. Um, and, and he, was just very, you know, they were aficionado as a whole, that group, they were very progressive in that sense where like they, they knew that's where it was going. They already knew that, that, that that's where that style, you know, now everybody's booth looks fly. Everyone's booth looks super nice, you know, but back in the day, you know what I mean? Like I didn't see leather chairs in anyone else's booth in an oriental carpet and a jewelry case. They were the only ones 
And that really piqued my interest for like, wow, what is this guy got going on, man? What is this guy doing? And that's when I drove up. Eventually, I drove up to his farm. And I was actually supposed to move to Washington. I didn't end up moving to Washington because I stopped in Mendocino. I I never left. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a 20-foot by 6-foot plant, and I was like, oh, <laughs> that's you know, that's all you got to tell me that it was beautiful, it, you know, and, and, and just the way that, that they, he approached it and just, you know, very like the, the culture and, and, and the people of the community um, was just like such like a really, really, really beautiful thing. It still is, of course, you know, it's, it's just become like something so special. And so, yeah, I decided to just start working as a farmhand. I wanted to leave the city. <clears throat> and um yeah uh started working as a farmhand with leo and my oldest brother carlo who also joined him carlo ended up being you know basically a foreman of the farm and yeah you know and it was a family thing and then frenchie you know offered me the apprenticeship and then i took that on and that i mentioned to you earlier that was one of the harder things is because i fell so in love with the country I fell so in love with working with the plants and being among with the plants. Um, I really didn't want to go back to the city, but that's where Frenchie was. And that's where, that's what it would take. It would take that sacrifice of like, okay, you know, you know, you have to sacrifice certain things for the greater good or to, to, to really progress. So one of those things was like, okay, you know, I can take a step back from working with the plants and being in the country and go back to the city. I mean, I wouldn't change it for the world, of course. <laughs> if I had it repeated, I would. <laughs> Do you feel like that experience working with your brothers on the farm influenced you into wanting to learn more about the resin and hash? Yeah, it definitely did, especially because of how into hash my my brother is too. You know, he's really, in, he's just, a, he's a hash connoisseur as well. So even more so, he's very familiar with growing plants for hash. And that was really such an interesting thing to, to just work, you know, to learn that from them and to learn the whole thing, you know, the whole thing from A to B, whether, whether it be the, the, the life of the plant, you know, the different growth cycles of the plant and the resin and identifying, you know, like ripe resin to even infrastructure, you know, even the small things of building infrastructure, building greenhouses, those things that really were like just, you know, and all of those things in, down the line, I find, you know, it makes you a good hash maker too. The more you understand, actually, the more you understand about the, the, the process, it makes you a very good hash maker, especially if you grow your own stuff. You have that such deep, you know, you have a deep connection with it from from start to finish, especially if you pop the seeds and grew it and then hashed it. Wow, I've done that before. Right. <laughs> some of the yeah, some of some of the best stuff I've ever made actually until this day. I guess it was just that that whole one line connection, just a small batch run, but like you know, like it was just like one of the pop a seed, grow the plant, and wash it. You just have that connection, but yeah, yeah, definitely having that connection with the plant and like I, le I learned so much from it and and, and you learn a lot you know just with you know IPM you learn 
you know, you learn to identify things within that. And that's great for hash making. You know, you learn to identify the spider mites. You learn, you learn to identify these things, sprays, sulfurs, just all those things that are really vital to the, you know, the quality of your final product. So yeah, those lessons were um, really valuable and did, did help me a lot and really get me, you know, it really just like even more so struck that curiosity of the resin and plants. Yeah. So let's talk about something that goes hand in hand with the craft and that's tools. And uh, I saw that you gave a little talk that included a portion on tools. So I'm curious kind of uh, what that consisted of or, you know, how you envision the use of tools within your craft. Yeah. And you mean tools as in like the, the, like the, the machinery and the tools that we use. Yeah. I, I guess like the physical tools that you use to do the, the actual hash making. Yeah. So definitely we have stepped it up from plastic. <laughs> That's one thing. Definitely, you know, those, those plastic washers, you know, you're never going to keep those as clean as a stainless steel vessel. That's just the way it is, the way those surfaces are and the way those machines are built, the nooks and crannies, the structural, the structures of them. Um, so that's one of the most important things, you know, is having those really clean, clean vessels to start with. Um, and the tools, you know, like I said, the, the hashishian's tool, the hash maker's tool is the sieve. One of the main tools that, that define us is the sieve. And, uh, in the process, you know, part of, part of the process too is the cleanliness, dude. <laughs> I think, you know, I would have, I could argue that 80% of hash making is cleaning, constantly cleaning. You're always cleaning, or at least I am, you know, at least I might, me, me and the crew are. It's like dishwashing all day, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, like it's, if you want to really keep it clean, you know, that's safe. You know, that, that tool is one of the most important tools to keep clean because, you know, if you're, if those perforations are clogged up, you're not passing contaminant through, you know, like if they're clogged up, if they're sticky or if they're just, if you don't have the good protocols on sanitizing and cleaning your bags, that's one thing, you know, and just having going through and utilizing new sets. And that's one thing, you know, like I, I hope that we can improve because that's a little wasteful. <laughs> Are those saving bags, you know, like I wish, I, I wish we could find a more environmentally friendly way to do it. It's just like metal and, you know, using a metal sift or, you, you know, separation through metal is kind of like, to me, it's very hard on that surface because the pliability of metal is not like a, a sieving bag where it's more pliable. Yeah, it has a little more yeah. give. give yeah, to it. yeah. You're not, you're not, you know, you're not washing it or you're not forcing it. You're not forcing this through like such a hard surface. Um, the gent, the more gentle we are on those heads, the better. But yeah, the the cleanliness of our tools, you know, and using all stainless steel. I like to use. I recommend this for everybody too. I like to use kind of like sanity safe or sanitary safe tools. 
tools without little nooks and crannies for water to get stuck in. You know how you ever have like a spatula that you use for like pancakes or something and it's like a plastic handle with a metal attachment? And sometimes, you know, like there's water that will get stuck into it and you're just like dripping water. You know, who knows how long that's water sat in there and, and create, you know, there's bacteria in there. So we like to use like real, like if it's a spoon, you know, it's a solid spoon. It's one piece of like, you know, we don't have like a, a, a plastic with, and if we do a plastic to metal attachment, it's a, it's a, it's, it's sani safe certified. Like it, it is, it is meant for water to not go into anything. It's meant for dishwashers. We don't use a dishwasher, but that's a good test of it. If it, if it can withstand dishwasher, then it's pretty good. I like to use white if I have the option for white handles. I like to use white. I like to see contaminant. I love white everywhere. And then um, with, yeah, like with spoons too. Like I like, I just prefer just like a good long solid piece of metal spoon, you know, no, no plastic attachments or anything or the ones with little ridges in them. Some, some are fancy, you know, you'll see like a little design. I really prefer not to go with those type of tools. I prefer just a smooth surface if possible to find these tools. Uh, we also use UV light to sanitize our tools and, and some of our smaller equipment pieces. And yeah, we just have a really, we, we really do uphold a cleaning log too for our tools and our area and our, in our, just in general. Uh, we, we are one of those companies where that's actually something where we take it very seriously and we do fill out the cleaning logs. You know, we do ensure. And I, what I love is the team's accountable for it too. The team is like checking up on each other, like, "Hey, you know, did you did we do the deep clean on the freeze dryers?" You know, it's and that's another thing. The tools, the freeze dryers, the deep clean on the freeze dryers too. Like that's important maintenance too to get you know make sure those get cleaned really nicely. Yeah, because it's in our interest to, of course, create the product for the public in the safest conditions possible. Yeah. So a few questions. One. Uh, I see you guys sieving. So I'm assuming that you're sieving after the freeze dryer. Um, well, we when you're when we're collecting, when we're washing, that's sieving as well. Um, yeah, those I, I guess dry. Yeah. I, I meant more dry sieving. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah. Right so way. yeah, so yeah. Actually, when we're collecting out of the the freeze dryer, like you've seen Brian, the Bryantist, he's posted quite a few videos of it um yeah we like to to loosen it up and what that does that 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 uh sieving process after the freeze dryer is see any chunks of ice or anything like just make sure there's no i mean normally there's not you know <laughs> and also sometimes in like any any bigger microns for some reason you know like a, a tiny little piece of leaf somehow got in there but that metal sift We'll catch that and you'll see that and you'll be like, oh, I'm glad, glad we ran that through. Made sure that, you know, tiny little piece of leaf wasn't in there. <laughs> it's one right. of our, yeah, it's like kind of a good time to QC to do quality control. And this entire room that you guys are, are working in that's like visible to the public, is it kept at a pretty low temperature, like the whole thing at all times kind of thing? Yeah, we try very, very hard to keep it at a low temperature and we're even going to we're going to have to get it even lower at some point. So, 
and in efforts to do that because it's beautiful. Oh my gosh, I can't wait for you to see it. Um, it is very beautiful. We have a big grand window out into the parking lot, the hash lab. It's the first hash lab I have ever worked in that had a window out into the world, let alone another room, you know? All my hash labs have always been Connex boxes or in just like a bunker. Right. Uh, so this is the first you know, where we have a grandiose timber beam glass window into our, you know, very nice parking lot. Um, but of course, you know, that's not really conducive to keeping a room clean, the super cold. So of course now we're, we're going to need to get that thermal curtain, especially if we're running fresh frozen. It's nice to open it up when no one's in the lab. It brings like, or if we're, if we're not doing a wash that day in the lab and we're doing something that it doesn't, it needs to be cold, but it doesn't need to be that cold. Well, you know, we'll open up those doors and get some light in there, man. It's so cool. I, I, I can't tell you, I almost started crying one day because like I had those doors open and I was pressing my hash and the sun was rising. I was like, oh, dude. And, you know, Nightmares on Wax was playing on the background. I was like, oh, this is this is just too good to be true, man. It's just like pressing hash, listening to good music in this beautiful lab. And the sun is the sun is rising outside. Like, but Again, we have to, you know, that those are, it, it's beautiful, but like, you know, those are things where keeping the room clean, cold, we'll have to get those thermal jackets incorporated. And we're also going to try to drop that temperature just a little more because we, we definitely want to aim to get it really, really, really cold in there. But it yeah. already, really is cold in the building. I mean, if you walk into the building as a, in the hall, you're like, oh, cold in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a hashery. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's cool. But it is interesting to see how the like different elements add these different variables that you'll have to deal with. And you know, one thing that I uh, mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk about was this custom uh, washing vessel that you guys got going on there because uh, yeah. it looks pretty large, and I find it intriguing that you guys you know had it made. So, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so we uh, that is a DCI tank, and it was originally for curd, like dairy products. We have repurposed it into for hash making purposes. So, uh, and we lifted it off the ground even so that we can gravity drain it because actually it was designed very low to the ground because um, you know it's a big machine. Typically, those bigger machines aren't lifted off the ground; they're so heavy. Um, and it has a glycol jacket. It, so it was originally a pressure vessel and it was made for high heat, high temperatures, extreme temperatures. We, so we will be utilizing the glycol jacket portion of it. And originally on the bottom of it, it had a two inch drain, a big, this big 500 gallon machine has tiny little two inch drain. Yeah, and like, sound. oh my God, like how are we going to empty? empty this machine out you know and like we made the jokes of like oh someone will just get in there and shovel it into a bucket and then crawl out you know (laughs) (laughs) we're like no so we thought you know of course because because we want to free flow the material we really want to try our best to like not put bags in there i don't like putting bags in machines you know it just like clumps up you know you're washing something and like because the water is the medium to which you know the resin gets suspended and falls you know what? The more water you have, that that resin has more surface area. It's it's the surface area for the resin to be able to release from the plant and, and fall really nicely. So when you're compacting it in a bag, you know if you ever 
if you ever wash something like in a laundry bag before, like it, it gets pretty compact in there. Like, I don't know how, how, you know, I don't feel that you're maximizing that way. But, um, so we want to avoid that. So we want it to free flow. So what we did was we actually had a welder come in and weld in a four inch drain, a big, big drain. So now we have a big drain. And yes, the plant material does come out of it. We are able to empty it really, really easily. We got a, a, a low shear paddle. Um, we are in the R&D phases of it currently. And so far, so good. But yeah, that thing is a beast, man. Like um, it's, it's a 500 gallon machine, but we are only running it at the half. We're only filling it to the halfway point. So far, we've only just put like a 20 pound run in it. So it's pretty interesting and it's, it does really, you know, it does yield and it's, it's like, you know, we're getting down, you know, pretty close numbers to, to what we're getting hand spinning. And we're trying to, of course, we're, we're, we're trying to maximize it more, but we're kind of going slow at, with it at, at right now. But so far, we're like, we feel very confident that the vessel is, is in fact working out for us. So like, we're pretty happy with that because, <laughs> you know, you put all of this effort into it and you're like, okay, is it going to work? <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, it it ended up working really beautifully. Yeah, we ended up pulling some really nice bags from it. Um, it is really impressive the way the vortex flows, and it's very gentle. It's very, very gentle. We do have the ability to 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 turn to counterclockwise the flow or to clockwise, you know, to get the the agitation going clockwise. But it's just a nice slow vortex. And yeah, it's basically just it's the same exact thing you know it just slowly nicely agitates it free flow in there you know and then yeah and then so i'm curious like with so much water in there and when you're collecting what does that look like like uh into buckets is there like a direct drain system kind of thing how big are the bags yeah so right now what at the moment be- before the, the DCI tank, we were using uh, the Brutless, the peer pressure Brutless system. So we okay. had a 40-gallon mixing agitation, the 40-gallon paddle, um, and then we have the two vest, the two catch vessels underneath. So now we've incorporated to those three. We we're we're draining into three vessels. Well, we started with two, but we're gonna we're gonna make it so that we can drain into three, and three people are pulling bags, so we can drain a little faster. But yeah, so right now we're draining into two brutless vessels. All, both of them, of course, have saving bags. Um, and we're, when we get the right attachments, we're going to be then draining into three brutless vessels and the team will be collecting the bags. Yeah. Okay, cool. And yeah. I, I'm assuming that's like, a, is that like an automated process where, where it goes from one to the other? Or did you tell me earlier that it, you have like a, a pump that runs that? Um, it's a computer. It's a motor. Yeah, it's a motor from, it's a, oh, I wish I could, it's a mix, something mixer. <laughs> I wish I could tell you, I can't think of the name off the top of my head. Um, um, but I was talking about like between the, the big vessel and the brutless systems. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, um, no, it doesn't pump out, it gravity drains. I see, okay. Yeah, yeah. So from the, from the, it's just like, a, so on our, uh, Peer pressure on our brutless vessel, normally if we're hand stirring a small batch, we have the 40 gallon on a platform raised above so we can gravity drain. Um, and that's why we raised the DCI tank 
So it's raised actually at the same height off of the ground as, as the platform that we've been working at. Um, right. Cause we know that that's where the, the two catch vessels can, can, uh, easily go under. Yeah, okay, we raised cool. that, the machine pretty high off the ground. <laughs> yeah, no, it looks cool. Like, uh, you said, I'm, I'm actually excited. I hopefully to get out there and, and see it in the race platform looks pretty cool. And like you said, obviously like the being able to just look into the whole lab, uh, is pretty neat. And like you said, novel because most times <laughs> people did not want to know, or people didn't want people to know where labs were yeah. or, or whatever kind of things. But I'm curious, like what bags are you guys pulling when you do, uh, drain into those brutless? Uh, well, we're pulling, I like to, when we're first running something, we definitely like to do a full set. We like to see what we're working with. I know a couple other hash makers um, also feel the same sentiment as whereas if you're running something for the first time, you kind of want to put a, a good spectrum set in there to see, see where you're at. And then once you see where you're at, you're like, oh, okay, you know, like maybe we didn't need that bag. We can kind of just like, you know, do these bags after you understand right. where it's at. Yeah. And what you're doing with it and the purpose of it, you know, as well, you know, what, what you have in mind for it, what we have in mind for it. Yeah. And usually, well, um, at, well, after we'll tell that after it's freeze dried. So after the full bag set, you know, we'll do one day where we'll put the full bag and then after, we'll see the next day, like, all right, you know, like, you know, we'll see where we're at with that based on the, when it's dried. Well, Bill, I know we've been talking for quite a while. I really appreciate you hanging out with me. Uh, I'll kind of start winding this down. You know, yeah. we kind of brought this up. I think last time that we spoke and about brands and, you know, you mentioned to me that before really the only kind of brand you needed was just to grow some really good herb and, and bring it to the party. And, you know, uh, that's the way, but nowadays uh, with legalization and even in the medical days, you know, like I, I feel like obviously branding kind of started going hand in hand and, I wouldn't necessarily say that branding, a good branding always matches a, a good product. But uh, like I was telling you the other day, I do feel like a brand with no long-term substance won't survive. But you went further and said that like a brand is not something that you deem yourself. It's something that you need to be or almost earned and, and given by the public. Yeah. Could you comment on that? Yes, yes. I feel that really deeply is like your your brand, you know, you are not a brand until the public considers you a brand. Like the public, the people identify brands. The people will call you a brand. If you're a true brand, if you're a true product, like a true quality product, you will be deemed as a true quality product by your community. It's the same thing as goes with masters. I meet a lot of masters here. <laughs> Everyone's a master here. I'm like, dang, never met so many masters. There's so many masters in this area. Master growers, master this, master that. And I'm like, that's cool and all. But the community will call you that. You know, 
Like if you truly are, you don't call yourself that. The community calls you that. Community gave you that name. People gave you that name. And the same with your product. If you have a loud jar, like I said, you know, like I love that. You know, I just really love. And I and and I'm and I know I'm very young, and I caught really caught the ass end of this, the real tail end of kind of these days of where it was turkey bags and ball jars everywhere. And, um, and if you had a loud jar, you had a loud jar, your, your shit was loud. You know, you didn't, it wasn't based on your packaging. It wasn't based on who you are and your brand, your company. It was just about like, damn, you grew some really good weed. Your shit's loud. That's good stuff. Um, and you know, and that's changed because people nowadays can't even smell the weed, man. They can't even smell the weed. <laughs> so now it's all about what aesthetics. Um, and one of the things I really, and I, one of the things I just really agreed with Frenchie on is so much is that's like our weakest sense is our sight. We base so much. We, we, we use so much on our, on the, like, we rely so much on aesthetics and the looks of stuff. And it's actually our worst sense because a clear liquid, well, it's, it could be water, you know, <laughs> a clear liquid. You know, you can't tell what a clear liquid is with your eyes, but you can tell what a clear liquid is with your taste and nose for sure. For sure, for sure. You could tell if that's ISO, you could tell if that's water or H2O2, God forbid you get that on your tongue. But yeah, you know, that, you know, we're basing everything so much on aesthetics and that's unfortunate. And, and it's kind of like this, this, this weird line where it's like, God, yeah, now you do have, because you do have to have, you have to play the game, right? You have to have your stuff in boxes. It has to have all these little things on them, all these little rules and, and messages from everybody. And, and for the, you know, and rightfully so people have are very much entitled to that information. Absolutely. And, and that information needs a place to go. I hope we find a better way to convey this information properly preferably you know a little less wasteful but yeah and that you know and this this medium that we're using to convey information also has to look pretty too so now you know it has to be captures people's eyes because now you, in a lot of places you can't rely on how loud your jar is anymore but it makes an all the world of a difference you know it makes an all the world of a difference when your stuff when your packaging looks good but but when your stuff is amazing, it doesn't even matter what your packaging looks like. You just got amazing stuff that should never go away. Um, and the people will always remember that. The The community will always. And, and, and it's up to you to uphold that, too. The community will dictate whether or not you uphold that or whether or not you don't uphold that. And things are always changing. So, But if you're, like I said, if you're a true brand, Louis Vuitton community knows Louis Vuitton as a brand the purse brand and same with Hugo Boss that's a brand because the community identifies that as a brand you know Hugo Boss didn't you know they didn't be like you know they weren't like we're a brand <laughs> we are we are a high-end brand we're a brand everybody hey we're a brand like people just know that <laughs> it's like a really good brand <laughs> yeah and I mean again it comes down to like the product yeah know? it has to be a 
a high-end product or whatever in that case that just gets a reputation for being consistently a high-end product. Yeah, it's the craft, something craft, you know, it's just a real craft product, you know, even with, with, with coffee and, and, and wine and cheese, you know. Yeah, those, those. pretty much anything really, you know, any kind of craft, like you said. Um, yeah, anything, anybody who goes about of their way to preserve those terpene profiles. <laughs> whether it's cheese or coffee or like we're all on that same game that's the name of the game is the terpenes taste of the place you know the or just you know just representing that just being able to capture that terpene profile of that plant yeah it's true you know uh talking speaking of travel i know you guys did quite a bit of traveling together and you did quite a few of these lost art of the hashishin uh, courses is there anyone that like is most memorable to you or, or things that stick out to you about those travels? Well, for instance, meeting people like you, <laughs> you know, meeting all my friends, you know, meeting good homies like you. And, um, but I think, you know, I would have to say, believe it or not, it was my car rides with Frenchie traveling across up and down the United States. We drove my little Honda everywhere. <laughs> but those car rides with Frenchie and the deepest conversations we would have together and, um, you know, just little moments of our little cultural differences, you know, like he was never used to sharing his spliff. In Europe, you don't share your spliff. That's it's a, it's a very interesting, cult, you know, it's just a different culture there. Everyone rolls their own. Like you don't, it's weird when you ask for side of someone else's flip, everyone has their own. They'll give you some to roll for you. Like here's some tobacco and hash and a paper. Like you can roll your own, but like, don't be, don't be hidden on mine. But here, you know, it's like different. It's like almost like, you know, like we're group smokers. We'll smoke a joint together. So it's funny, you know, our little cultural differences on our car rides, you know, like you'd be smoking this flip. I'd be like, Oh, let me get ahead of that. I'm driving, dude. I can't roll anything, <laughs> you know? And he's like, okay, you know, like, you know, like, but over time, you he just started passing me the spliff, you know, and I was like, you know, and vice versa. And like those, those conversations and those just real deep, the things that I've learned from him beyond hash. Yeah. You know, just, and, and each workshop, I learned something different. It was the same workshop every single time. But I listened every single time. And every single time that I listened, I've actually learned something new. I learned something different. Or I just like kind of like something suck in, sunk in a little more. Or I noticed something about Frenchie or, or something about the process or about the history. I think, you know, I was always making sure to, to try my best to humble myself and to make sure like, okay, like uh, every time I have something to learn. And it was always something new. But yeah, it was... I think the best the, the best part of that was the people that we met and being able to just be a part of educating that and spreading that knowledge and spreading that 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 love for the plant and the love for the hash and just meeting the community and connecting with the community like it's so crazy you know hundreds of people now have been educated because of those workshops hundreds and now videos and stuff and even being a part of those, you know, drive, you know, driving to the video where we're going to shoot the video workshops or, or that interview or, 
or whatever have you, you know, I'll have to post these pictures on Instagram some days, but you know, like I, you know, I've, I was always there in the, you know, in the back, you know, like I have pictures of, um, just visiting, you know, like, uh, K mud, K mud and Humboldt, K mud radio, you know, going, even going to those little things, learning stuff from there and, you know, KSCO in Santa Cruz, you know, going down to that radio station and, you know, going various places because when we would do workshops, we would, you know, kind of make a trip of it. Like, Oh, we're going to be up in this area. So we could, we should go visit these farms or these right. people. And um, so it was kind of like a portion of that was part of the trips too, is kind of visiting farms and people and, um, yeah, I'm just learning, always learning, man. You learn so much from everybody. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, you told me something that piqued my interest, which is related to the classes. And, and you said like, you know, there was likely hundreds of students over the years in these courses, but he told you something along the lines of, like he actually never really knew how to teach anyone until he taught you. So having yeah. got to know him pretty well, uh, what do you what do you think or what do you feel he meant by that? He would tell me that he he didn't see himself as a good teacher because he didn't one well one uh, English you know obviously wasn't his first language but two. It, not, it wasn't just that. It was mainly, uh, you know, he just never had to, was in a position where he had to teach somebody. Of course, he has a, you know, very beautiful, amazing daughter. And that's like parenting is, in in a sense, teaching too. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, of course, you know, he, of course, he had that, that ability, you know, but I think that he he just never envisioned himself ever being a teacher as a profession. You know, he he definitely was like, you know, not like, oh, especially yeah. with like hash or. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It just kind of came, came, it kind of fell upon him where, um, yeah, it's interesting how he was telling me it was, it was sub cool that told him about getting an apprentice and the benefits of having an apprentice and passing, you know, passing it down and, you know, getting, you know, getting somebody like, really fresh like a sponge so that you can teach them which was me you know like I, I wasn't already an established hash maker as a trade it was just a hobby so I was fresh I was a sponge and he was able to kind of like really really be patient and we learned together like we did it together and and we we you know he he was really you know it was really sad uh, he was um it's what he said to me actually last. He said, um, like we did it together and like we learned together. And, um, man, that was really beautiful because he was just like, um, like I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> he was like, I, he was like, I literally had to like figure out, and this is in verbatim what he said, excuse my language. He was like, I had to get my shit together. <laughs> he was like, I literally, he's like, I had to get my shit together. He's like, I had to figure out how to get my shit together. And he was like, um, he had to learn how to explain things. He never had to, to explain the process to somebody. So I was the first person where side by side, 
on a daily basis, the first person on a daily basis doing this every single day, you know, literally waking up in the same house, eating breakfast together, going downstairs, you know, making that, you know, doing the thing or, you know, going to our facility and doing the thing. Yeah. But he had to learn how to explain the process and, and, and detach too. He had to step back from the process and let me do it and let me touch the resin. And he said to me, that was one of the hardest things for him as a teacher to do because he's so attached to it. And in a sense that made, it made me a better leader too. I think about that till this day with, with my crew. And, and that's what a good leader does. A good leader is able to detach themselves from the situation. They're able to detach themselves from their creative attachments and their personal agendas in order to educate this person so that this person, you know, in in order to educate um, their student or their team member so that they can get the knowledge and experience necessary to take on that position. Because that's the job of a teacher or a leader is to prepare that student or employee or team member, what have you, for that. To, 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 to pre- a good leader is going to set them up for success, to prepare them from success. And that means that they have to detach and let somebody else handle the job and guide them through the job. And that's what Frenchie did for me. And he didn't even really hover on around my shoulders. You know, he just, he kind of just let me do my thing. He would come check in with me and be like, hell yeah, looks good. Perfect. You know, you're getting it. Looks good. Can't even tell the difference of my wash and your wash. <laughs> so, you know, it got to that point where, and that trust started to build. And, you know, and I, and it's gotten to the point, you know, where I see that success, that same success, that same thing that Frenchie did was just detaching and being able to um, know how to explain things easily <laughs> without getting too scientific or too deep or trailing off or, or uh, yeah, being like precise and, and, and figuring out like, okay, like how, how am I going to teach this? Like, how am I going to explain this? And yeah, so it's funny because, um, you know, he said he didn't know what he was doing. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I sometimes I feel like that, too. I'm like, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, I, and I remind myself that, yeah, oh, Frenchie didn't know what he was doing either. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I don't know if any of us knows what we're yeah, doing. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> like we just try our very best. <laughs> and he just happened to be. You know, and it's crazy because he just happened to become one of the greatest teachers of of all time, in my opinion. You know, he's funny because he said he wasn't very good at it. And I'm like, really? (laughs) You seem kind of good at it, Frenchie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I love how humble that guy is. (laughs) Yeah, he was a special guy. You know, I I haven't really uh, said anything publicly, but yeah, I... Uh, you know, my condolences, obviously, to you and, and to his family. And um, Thank you. You know, it's we lost a, a great person. And I, I know it seems like it was kind of unexpected. And I think that it seemed to be really impactful uh, on the community. But I think that only shows, like, how impactful his life was within the community as well. Yeah, him, him and, and also his wife, Kimberly, too. Who's, who's consistently, you know, through all the years had his back. Um, and she was actually like the backbone of supporting the hash, the hash, uh, create creativity of it all. 
Um, she honestly was just gave French, you know, really helped support Frenchie to express that, that, that side. And, you know, not everyone gets blessed with such a cool partner to like, especially in their time from, you know, where, you know, the, the kind of time period too, that they, they, that they witnessed and, you know, how, how even more so like the war on drugs and like just how bad, you know, how taboo this type of trait is. But, you know, Kimberly, she's, you know, she's also very well-traveled, you know, her, she met Frenchie in, uh, you know, in India and Nepal. They met each other, you know, and by chance, you know, it's a funny story. Uh, if you ever meet her, it's a good story, you know, how they met by chance in both countries. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, she was definitely a big part of it too. You know, being part of the backbone of like is supporting, supporting the teachings. And she still is going to continue to like support those you know, she's still running the lost art of the Hashishin page. She's still working on the books, you know, kind of just finishing out those things that Frenchie would want to keep, keep going. Um, but yeah, not a lot of people know that, you know, so I do like to say that because she, she really did put a lot of just so much effort into, into educating all of those people as well. She cooked all the meals too. <laughs> she's quite the chef. I mean, she's she's wonderful, man. You know, she 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 cooked the meals and and she planned and she organized and she, you know, she basically did everything else but the hash making. And even so, even some of those days, she even you know, like come down to the lab and and you know, just help here and there too. You know, yeah, back way back in the day, but that was that was back in the day. No, no, but that's cool. I. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you you hear a little bit about Madame Cannoli, but yeah. you know it, it's it's cool to know that she she has been so influential and, and such a big part of uh, what he was doing as well. Yeah, yeah, and and just the amount of students, you know, the amount of students he has is awesome. You know, and of course, he has another apprentice too. Lena was uh, another. He formally accepted her as an apprentice. Not not that like maybe I'm not sure probably three years ago I'm not sure but I know I know that um, eventually he he took on another apprentice Lena and it was you know I like to call her like my hash sister she's <laughs> amazing very talented she's a grower you know very I guess Frenchie has a niche for finding really strong awesome women <laughs> that's cool because like you yeah. said it's not a it's not a common thing, especially uh, in this industry and in this sector of the industry uh, yeah. specifically. So I think it's great. And the diversity can only be helpful, I feel like, for, for everyone. You know, one thing I wanted to touch upon before we end it was your favorite ways of smoking. Because as we've been taking some dabs tonight or you've been using your... Uh, your three hole bowl, which I, I see you post pretty regularly and some people yeah. may not be familiar with. So what are some of your favorite ways of smoking? And I mean, since you guys are making all kinds of hash and rosin, what is your favorite to smoke personally? So personally me, of course, of course, of course, I'm partial to the pressed hash flour too. I love flour. I love spliffs. I love spliffs so much. Definitely tobacco consumption is probably not going to be a permanent thing in my life. 
but I do really love it. I love hashed and tobacco so much. I love chillums. I love smoking a traditional ceramic chillum. Just ordered, actually just ordered a really beautiful chillum from Jonas Chillum on Instagram. He's a beautiful chillums. And then my other way of smoking. So, and then I like to just smoke out of the three hole bowl. Like you said, like a rig. I love using like a, uh, I prefer the herb iron, which is like a, it's a glorified soldering iron with a ceramic tip, which I really like, but I don't mind using a quartz wand and heating it up. Um, but the three hole bowl is of course, you know, the bowl with the three holes on top instead of that one hole on the bottom, like a flower bowl. Um, yeah, that, and the three holes on the top, you know, makes it so that they can nest, nest the, the hash and it doesn't fall into the, obviously yeah so that's one of my favorite ways i the first three-hole bowl i started smoking out of was from andy roth um it was the first time i seen him for that tech done personally that's just the first one i'm not saying i'm not making any claims to saying he was the first one to do it i was just saying it's the first bowl that three-hole bowl that i've smoked out was an andy roth bowl and what's really awesome is we have two really good amazing hat glass blowers at heritage who are you know they they're and uh, one is Cool Hand Sue's, and she's been making glass for the shop, three whole bowls that you could actually find at our shop, Cool Hand Sue's. Um, and her partner, who's also one of our hash makers, too, is a, a hazard. He's a glass blower, too, and he, he has a few glass pieces at our, at our shop, too. And it's, it's cool that uh, we're able to have that such talent in-house because, you know, like Sue's, Cool Hand Sue's, she can you know, whip up a couple of these three whole bowls for people that are having a hard time finding these, these attachments because they're very proprietary attachment. You know, they're very proprietary hash, hash equipment right there. Right. <laughs> it's hard to find a three whole bowl, but um, uh, that's my personal way of smoking, favorite way of smoking. I know there's a lot of other people who really, really, really dig the three whole bowl. From there, and then I like dabs. Of course, I love rosin. I love rosin, dude. I love dabs. I just like, of course, I'm I'm, I'm partial to the hash. I smoke my spliffs, all, like my tobacco and hash, and my weed and hash, all day. I feel like my joints are naked, or my tobacco, like it's naked if it doesn't have hash. It doesn't <laughs> feel complete. Like I don't like it. It's like not my favorite. It's like oh, it's naked. Like it don't have hash in it. Um, but yeah, and then I love dabs too. I love dabs so much. Actually, I started loving dabs because of the brightest man. He makes some fire rosin. Yeah, like he's really good at his tech. I really like learned a lot from him. Like I said, he's the, an, a, an amazing partner to be working with. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, like it's it's because uh, I never got I never had to focus on rosin. I did a little bit of rosin, you know, and I wasn't doing a very amazing, you know, an amazing job at it. Um, didn't have the deep appreciation for it that I do now because I was so into pressed hash. I was, you know, I was just really like, that's my love. That's my true love. But after working with um, the Brian just a little bit more and just really getting into it and understanding like the different types of consistencies that you can achieve through rosin and, you know, the kind of terpene profiles that you can capture. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So definitely like my favorite, my, my, my crew, you know, my guy, those guys just dabbing me out all the time. So definitely <laughs> has, it has become one of the faves. We definitely want to jump on one of those, those we've been trying to jump on one of those uh, meetings, those zoom meetings with you. And so we could all like, you know, have a sesh, all four of us. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Jumping on the meeting. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like yeah. my uh, my kind of crew. Yeah, yeah, we definitely. Yeah, like I said, we love to the. Uh, we love like trying different stuff on our shelves. You know, from have hash, real deal resin, dot greens, frosties. You know, <laughs> it's just some of those. Like we're always like, oh man. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. You know, like you said, you know, after work, you, you, there's a bunch of other stuff that you can try. You have like, obviously, yeah, your, in, your in-house yeah. stuff. And yeah, yeah, you have all these other brands. And uh, yeah, that's seven cool. Ten. Seven times good, too. Yeah, I man, like like I said, like, man, like, I'm, I love, 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 the, love the people doing it, too, man. Love the product they're putting out there. Pretty proud of the North California hash makers and SoCal hash makers too, you know, I'm pretty proud of the hash, the, the hash game out here. I think, I think we, we do real well out here for California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So actually that leads me to my next question is uh, what are some of your aspirations for the community uh, of the Emerald triangle and say the next five years? I would say I would really like to see more support for the smaller farmers and, and more just ease up. <laughs> I keep saying this, but dude, ease up on the taxes. Come on, man. Like they're just making it so hard. They're making it so hard, like to, to, to survive. So I would just really like, you know, I don't know. I, I wish I could speak more on this because I, I just don't know. Um, I wish there was some solutions that we, you know, that, that could be talked about, but I would really like to see the, the, the people of the community be, being a little bit more taken care of. You know, I would really like, for instance, the Bureau of Cannabis Control. Like I would like them to possibly have more empathy for, you know, for certain things or in certain situations. I know they deal with so much. I know they deal with a lot of different farms, but even things like that are just having a little bit like even the the counties and the restrictions that they put on certain stores or, you know, are on or in growers or, you know, the hoops that they, they have to make everybody jump through. But yeah, I just really want to see like the, the smaller the mom and pops survive. I want to see the, you know, the, the, the generational farms survive. Because that's the special. That's that's what's so special about here is, are you know these the community members who have been holding it down for the longest time, and just really trying to you know like keep that heritage up. Because a lot of these people too, they were they were you know they they need to pass this down. Their their intentions are to pass this down to their families and to their kids too. You know, and for for them to to have worked so hard for so long and and to kind of question whether or not that's going to be something they can do at all that sucks that sucks man because it was passed down to them from their pops you know sometimes you know a lot of the times and they want to do the same for like a lot of my friends want to do the same for their kids too um or the, for their families and in the and they want to keep the the heritage and the legacy going um so yeah that would be my thing is just to kind of like you know see a little bit more success within the community of having more success running their businesses, running their farms and getting permitted, getting aid for permitting, especially if they're going above and beyond to get to do the legal thing, man, come on, like no COVID help, no COVID assistance. You know, I heard some businesses, they didn't get, you know, like certain people just like 
you know, because we're cannabis, you know, it's like not federally recognized or anything, but you know, there's certain assistances that you don't get or grants or the banks, God, the banks. <laughs> okay. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole today, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, come on, man. Like, why are you going to make it so hard? Like it's money. <laughs> don't you banks like money? Yeah. So, you know, cause that's been, that's been a challenge. That's a challenge for, for a lot of these uh, mom and pops, but at the same time, at the same time, you want to be a legal businesses. You gotta, you gotta uphold some of those expensive things, like, um, just you know, in in general, like workers' comp, or you, you know, just some of those like basic needs that you need. Well, if you want employees, or you want a team, or you want a business, you're gonna kind of have to make the. You, should have accepted those those costs but at the same time um the county can definitely make it easier the state can make it easier with the taxes and everything right second to last question if you had to pick your top three hash makers or hash brands what would those be hmm my top three hash makers or hash brands i would say that's a hard one that's putting me a hot seat because they like the hobbies <laughs> are gonna be like what what come on man <laughs> see that's why i leave it for last almost last <laughs> can i make a disclaimer can i make a disclaimer sure it changes all the time my favorite <laughs> my favorites it's fair. You know, the favorites change all the time. You know, I um, I got a love. I got a love. I got a lot of love for like uh, moonshine melts. You know, I got a lot of love for Brandon. I love a lot of uh, like good work, good tech. Always had the fire. Every time I smoked his stuff, I've always really enjoyed his stuff. I really like Halia, man. They kick ass. I haven't yeah. tried. I haven't yeah. tried their brand yet, but uh, I've been really digging their stuff. And half hash, I like half hash. I like half hash a lot. Yeah, yeah. I was just say Jungle Boys kills it. Jungle Boys kills. They kill it, and um, and I really like Frosties. You know, I, I'm shouting out a lot of people right now. <laughs> I'm just like, damn, I don't know, dude. It's like all so good. There was someone I, oh, I wish it was like popped up in the back of my mind, and I was like, I'm oh, gonna think about it later, and be like, oh no. I should have said that one. That's my favorite. <laughs> but you know, like, um, like I said, it changes all the time. I just have such a deep respect for uh, a lot of these these companies because they just they really bring it. You know, they really they they really like bring the fuego, they bring the fire to the market, and I like super respect that. Yeah, and that's sure, good. And like I'm you sure said, they earlier. go above and beyond to do it too. <laughs> yeah, and that I think that kind of like uh, sense of. Uh, hopefully friendly competitiveness makes everybody kind of oh, keep their really game up. Uh, Resin Ranch, Todd, Resin Ranch Extracts. Yeah. 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 Todd makes, Todd makes that fire for sure. Oh yeah. Dude. And this man, Wakanda, the Adams, Adam, dude. Yeah. 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 And I actually, yeah, I'll go ahead and plug uh, simply Adams. I told you the resin dial, you guys, Definitely need one of those to do your test washes because yes, this little that thing sounds 
pretty nifty. I have to say that sounds pretty nifty. Yeah. See, no more replacing bags. Uh, you yeah. Have to do test washes and stuff. How many bags have you guys replaced in in the short time you've been open? I guess. <sighs> Man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like wow. You know, like more than I can kind of keep track of. Like I know, I know we've gone through a couple sets now, though. And you guys are doing full mesh? Yes. Yeah, we and do full mesh. When you wash them, I'm curious, like, what are, do you like, do you ISO or some kind of washing material? Yeah. So, this is a really cool conversation because, like, dude, I've been trying to get a consensus on this for a minute. Like, like I love talking to people about, like, like how you clean your equipment, like, how you clean your bags, man. Like, but, you know, what I do is I, I use ISO to get, resin off especially real sticky resin I, I use iso and i wash them off really good that i found that to be the most in my experience you know just in my opinion i found that to be the most successful way to release the resin off of the bags without leaving some kind of like residue because you know if even though olive oil releases resin um it's gonna leave a residue right so you like i i go for the iso to release the residue um, and that's at, usually at the end of the wash. Before we start a wash, uh, we like to get, we like to kind of like soak our bags in H2O2, very mild H2O2 water, kill any microbial life that may, you know, may or may not be present. But it's just the protocol that we do, you know, make sure it gets up nice and sanitized. And then we wash that off really, really, really well, of course. And of course, we, we don't use it. It's very diluted. Um, amount of H2O2, just enough to, to do what it needs to do successfully to kill any potential microbial activity. Um, but yeah, and then we wash that off really, and, and so far that's been working really nice. So we'll, we'll start to wash off with the, the H2O2 kind of preliminary precautionary wash. And then, um, you know, at the end, we'll do the ISO wash to release the stickiness and we'll, and that's the kind of like we really get into the perforations of the sieve too. Like even the fold, the seam, the seam is like if there's resin in the seam, you didn't wash those bags. There should not be ever. We we don't we don't have resin in our seams. It's not a usable bag, you know. Like we try really, 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 really hard to to stay on top of getting that resin out of the seams by working the fabric against one against each other. Almost like old school washing, you know. How they used to wash wash right. clothes back in the day. It's the same thing. Where if you rub it together, it will release the the resin in there, and and you have to stay on top of it. If you do this every day, you avoid that buildup inevitably. And if you if you of course you have to replace your bags, they get pretty brittle. The the ISO, you know, these chemicals will they'll, they'll make your bags brittle, and that's the downside. Because like I don't truly understand the chemical reaction happening to with the plastic because it is plastic at the end of the day. And I would like to understand that, you know, like I, there's so much I need to learn, you know, there's so much, I'm still such a student. It's kind of like scares me with how much I'm not going to learn what there is to learn in my lifetime, but I definitely would like to try because <laughs> it's like the tip of the iceberg right now. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I don't, I truly understand what on a chemical level, like what, what is happening. And like whether or not the the bags are really the best way. I, at the, at this point in time, they are to me, in my opinion. I know other other hash makers, you know, make a tea, for instance. You know, I 
he might have even mentioned it in this podcast, actually, how, you know, he thinks, you know, I, maybe, he, I think it was this one. He said, um, yeah, he, it was. Yeah, yeah. And he said that he, you know, he, he can foresee those phasing out, you know, and I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, I kind of see that too. But it's like, God, what would we phase them out with, though? <laughs> That's what scares me. It's like, I don't know, because like, I don't want to use metal. Metal just seems so abrasive. Uh, so what do you phase it out with? Like, what do you replace it with? That's it's a good question. Think, it's yeah, such a it's simple really- uh, tool, but mm-hmm. it seems pretty effective. Yeah, at the actually the other day I looked at my 220 under a microscope. I looked at the fibers of, uh, under a microscope and uh they were definitely getting a little tattered and old. You could see the fibers like that where where they're woven were starting to kind of like get brittle. We're probably going to This is after multiple like cleaning mm-hmm. sessions and stuff. Mhm. Yeah. I was curious. I was like I was like what yeah, do these yeah. bags look like like right now under <laughs> you know. Yeah, so we uh, we checked it out, and I was like, yeah, you can kind of see the brittleness of it. And I was like, okay, you know, that looks like it's time to be replaced. Yeah, no, that's um, interesting. That, that I, yeah, it was random, but uh, I'm glad that we we touched on it. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Bags. Yeah, and and replacing. <laughs> and replacing the bags. Yeah, they get they get pretty brittle, dude. They get brittle and they get old. They get discolored. Yeah, and you guys are processing. It seems like a good amount. A good amount, yeah. obviously, as well. So, yeah. um, last question, Bell. If you could hear anybody on the podcast, who would it be? Ooh, you know, I think you might have already got this one too, but I'm gonna say it, Sharag. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say Rob Clark, man. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear from that guy, Rob Clark, dude. Yeah, I'd like to hear from Rob Clark. Um, or even Dr. Ethan Russo. Dr. Ethan Russo is a good one. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Or cool. even you know what, my partner, the Bryantist dude, get a moment. The other guy's got some knowledge in that noggin. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to the Bryantist. Like I said, I I told you earlier, we we keep up. He seems like a cool dude. So. But yeah, man, hunt Rob Clark down, man. Want to hear from that guy? Uh, yeah, that's the uh, <laughs> that's the unicorn. We'll see. Yeah, I've only ever met him once. <laughs> <laughs> but, and it was very brief. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I know he must be a, a busy guy. So uh, yeah, yeah. No, I do definitely like uh, like really like hearing from that guy. Yeah. Cool. Well, good suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bo, like I said, I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Uh, I've had a lot of fun uh, chatting with you not only today but the other day. Um, yeah. I, I hope you did too. And. You know, I always like to say, you know, is there anything else you'd like to say before we end it? I just want to give a shout out to all of the hash makers out there before, you know, before I sign off here. It's like, I know, I know how hard it is and I know how competitive it could be. And um, especially if you've been doing it a long time. And I know, especially there's people who've been doing it, you know, when I, when I was still in elementary school. But um, it is hard and I know it, but I just want to say, like, don't give up. Don't give up, man, especially if you're on a good one. Like, I know it's really hard, but if you really love it, like, just try to dig deep and and hang in there because we need you. Like, we need all the craft people to stand up and just kind of, like, rep, rep. California 
rep the quality that comes out of here because we need we need the quality people to stay because the boof is taking over. It's getting scary. There's a lot of boof, so much mids on the market. Ah, and it's scaring me. So it's just like, you know, to the people who are really true to the quality and craft, like, man, like I know it's hard and you got my love and like you're my brother, you're my sister, but like hang in there, you know, and keep it going and like, let's do this. Like, let, let's rep California and like, you know, even the craft bands that come from other states too. United States in general, you know, it's just like we are a weed culture here. We love weed here. You know, we were very, as a country, we were very progressive to, to kind of incorporate it back into our society when it got taken from us. You know, we were, we spearheaded that. We were one of the few countries in the world that took the step to spearhead that, um, to bring it to legalization once again. So, you know, having being being one of those countries, it's like I take a lot of pride, you know, in being being such a forward thinker. I'm part of a big group of people who are also forward thinkers and agree on this topic. I know not everybody here agrees on this topic within our country, but there's a lot of people that do. And and there's a lot of people that have been fighting for it for so long. And it's a lot of those crafts, those small craft brands, those like those those more mom and pop hash makers too. I know it's really hard, but like, yeah, I hope that together as a community, we can kind of like find a way to make it work, make it happen, kind of support each other. That's why I really love heritage. Um, I like that, you know, we're able to somehow provide like a kind of smaller option, more artisanal craft option for the kind of the local farmers in the area as well. And, and there's a lot, there's other companies doing it too. So, uh, yeah, just want to put that out there, you know, like I really want to us to as a community to really work together and uh, start start showing a little love towards more love and support towards one another. Because uh, we, we, we like more now now more than ever, like we really need each other. We need each other more than we realize because um, like we're wasting time. <laughs> we're wasting time bickering amongst each other and like having, you know, these like kind of like really petty you know worrying over such petty things when when there's just this bigger picture in front of us that we all gotta like link arms and like figure out and leave it good for the next generation even beyond cannabis too because you know cannabis community is also the community that also represents a lot of other values there's a lot of other values that come with cannabis too you know like um freedom of speech, <laughs> you know, freedom, you know, freedom of, of choosing who to love, freedom of love, you know, freedom of religion. There's all like a lot of very similar themes in our communities that we all agree on. So yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, leave it at that. You know, we got this and hang in there, everyone. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I think it's a good message. And, uh, it's a upward, you know, climb, but I think it's possible. Yeah, man, I want to start seeing smoke shop. You know, I want to start seeing smoke houses. I think that's, you know, to add a little bit to earlier what you're saying about uh, what you were saying about what uh, what would I like to see in the next five years. Also, smoke houses, like little hash houses, like con consumption lounges and stuff too. You know, that'd be cool. 
Yeah, a real yeah. hashish yeah. in. Yeah, I'd really like to see us as a community, like as a, as a country, start to embrace that culture too. You know, it's going to take us linking arms to do that though. <laughs> <laughs> to get it normalized, you know, to get it to be something where people want to go to the smoke lounge and like watch the boxing match. So it's something that I want to do. I want to go to the smoke lounge and boxing match, you know. Yeah, I'm not super social, but like I, I'd be down to go to a smoke lounge if it was cool. Yeah, with some friends, you know, watch the game, watch the football game or, you know, Manchester United, whatever, whoever's playing that night. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. No, I, I agree. I, I think. I think we'll start seeing that. I think Vegas kind of starting that trend. And yeah. We'll, we'll see kind of what happens with that experience. Yeah. But again, yeah. Bill, thank you so much. Uh, everybody who stuck with us, I appreciate you guys listening. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.